Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, May the 18th, 843-661-0937. The morning after an election is always uh, an exciting morning, especially if you live in in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Oregon, Idaho, uh, a couple of other states. Oregon. I said Oregon, didn't I? Good morning, Greg. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm fine Uh, so far, thanks. Yeah, I've actually switched over from decaf to caffeinated coffee this morning because I stayed up a bit later than I normally do trying to figure out, you know, do we have a winner in Pennsylvania? I mean, a lot of elections happened uh, in a lot of different places. The three that probably stick out to me is Madison Cawthorn losing, and I think the 11th district in the state of North Carolina. And he was a Trump-endorsed a Trump candidate, Trump-endorsed right? candidate. You can't be but so stupid. I mean, that's the story there. You can't be just completely and totally off the rails. Um, if, if I were given the former president advice, let that one be. Leave that one alone uh madison cawthorn 26 years old has done about everything you can imagine to make it more difficult to lose uh, the power of the incumbency and um i mean if i lived in that district i'd probably vote against him as well because he just showed a, a degree of immaturity that i think is dangerous when you get to congress he's 26 years old and it's almost like he enjoyed you know being the center of attention and being the focal point of controversy in American politics, that would be kind of a, um, I, I don't know what you're reading into that. Uh, you can't be but so stupid and expect Trump to drag you across the finish line. Uh, you know, I believe in some of these races, maybe the Georgia gubernatorial race, that's probably more personal with Trump. But I think he finds one or two out there to kind of toy around with. Um, Mr. President, do not endorse Madison Cawthorn. He can't win. Have you seen these photos? Have you seen, have you heard these stories? Well, let's see how powerful our endorsement really is. Um, I'll tell you the story, the takeaway. Never before has a former American president, a former politician for that matter, had the sort of influence that he has over a political party. I mean, it's not cultist, but I was thinking about if Mitch McConnell were running in Kentucky today, I mean, if the primary in Kentucky was today, would he accept the Trump endorsement or not? And would he be worried about the Trump endorsement of a you know, a, a, a Republican opponent in the state of Kentucky, because I think they two represent two extremes uh, in the Republican Party. The the race that garnered the most attention naturally uh, was the uh, Pennsylvania Senate race. Uh, there are a lot of things going on in Pennsylvania um, as we speak. Uh, last night when I went to bed, it was about ninety nine percent reporting, but but the ninety nine percent reporting is based on what the um, projections are. You never know. I mean, when you see the national elections and it says 96% reporting, how do they know that? I mean, nobody knows how many votes are out there, but they project. And then I remember in 2016, not 2020, but in 2016, they got to about 99% and they revised it back to about 97% because there were more people participating than they um, projected. So when you see the 99% last night and Dr. Oz was behind about 3,000 votes, um, that number fluctuates because once again, uh, the, the modeling, the projections were, were not exact. They never are. I mean, they're always to some degree inaccurate because you're projecting how many millions of people are going to vote in a Republican or Democrat primary. But as we speak this morning, and there's not been an update since I checked at about 440 this morning, I went to real clear politics at about 440 this morning. And the number was Dr. Oz at 411, 674. Um, David McCormick at 409, 
0-2. Uh, that means Dr. Oz has a lead of 2,672 votes. I think it's 30, what, 32.1% to 32.3% uh, ish, somewhere thereabout. Uh, it's a, uh, it's basically a dead heat. They have a lot of mail-in ballots that they'll cancel, or excuse me, they'll count today and probably into the next couple of days, Rev. I don't know how you decide this. They didn't uh, stop counting in the middle of the night by chance, did they? I have no idea. I think they counted all the votes. They've just got some mail-in votes and uh. some other sorts of um, uh, issues that go along. But no, I don't think, I think all the votes have been counted except for the mail-in votes. Uh, that's what I'm hearing. Now, I don't know that, but I saw a tweet this morning and there's a, um, ah, there's an article on NBC News that says the uh, the only outstanding votes are indeed uh, the mail-in. So we'll see how that works out. Um, somebody, who would you rather be? I mean, if I'm, you know, would you rather be the leader of the race or not? You know, they ask these race car drivers at some of the, um, some of their stricter plate drafting sorts of tracks, you know, are you a sitting duck when you're in the front? Yeah, but I'd rather be there. <laughs> you know, I'd rather be leading the last lap than I had, you know, counting on the stars aligning and the drafting working and somebody going along with me. I'm talking about racing uh, terminology and verbiage now, but I would rather be Oz because as we went to bed last night and woke up this morning, he has more votes than David McCormick. He actually had fewer last night when I went to bed. I went to bed at about a lot, 1045, about 11. That's late for me, uh, maybe 1115. Uh, my daughter got home last night at about 1030, and she okay. wanted to express uh, her experience. She wanted to let me know kind of what it was like. She actually went, I think I could say this, um, she attended several events that were related to the Freedom Caucus. I mean, that was a lot of her time, energy, and effort was spent there. And um, I, I'll tell you the one thing I'm proud of her. Uh, Robert sent me a text yesterday afternoon as they were boarding to come back home yesterday uh, early evening and said, you know, she she listened more than she talked. Because I've expressed to her, as I've tried to do with all of my kids, you know, you earn the right to have your opinion taken seriously. You can have an opinion. I mean, an 18-year-old can have an opinion about anything. But you've got to you got to earn the right for that opinion to be taken seriously. And I've always encouraged her, listen more than you speak. You know, when you go to these sorts of things, um, pay attention, pay close, close attention. I think the highlight uh, from what I gathered was sitting at a table with Jim Jordan. He's kind of a celebrity, Rev, and maybe that's the problem with American politics in general. We've turned these candidates slash politicians. Heck, I'd like to sit at a table with Jim Jordan. I like it. Yeah, but but I mean, we're better governed when we don't know who doing who's doing the governing. And I mean that sincerely. Um, what are we talking about today? Why is Dr. Oz even... Uh, He's a celebrity. Sure he is. And, and I just think that's a terrible way to govern a country. And I think we're finding out the hard way. Uh, the more we turn these, you know, public servants. Yeah, okay, right. Uh, the more we turn these public servants into celebrities and brands, uh, the less, I, I don't know, Rev, the, the less effective they are in governing the country's affairs. Jim Jordan kind of has this brand you know, I don't wear a jacket. I roll my sleeves up. I was a wrestler and a wrestling coach. Um, and that's just. I just like him because he'll fight. Well, I mean, uh, he'll he, fight a but little. that's his brand. Right. I mean, that's his brand. Uh, we don't know if he's doing a good job of governing or not. I have no idea. I mean, does, does Jim Jordan advance a single piece of legislation? We don't know. But we know he'll fight. Mm -hmm. But shouldn't we know whether or not he's advanced a single piece of legislation. I mean, he may advance a lot of meaningful legislation. I don't know. I don't have any idea. I do know he'll fight. And I do. I do people on our side kind of like someone that fights. People on the left like someone 
who will fight AOC. It's kind of a brand on the other side. And I just, I thought about it as we were talking last night, man, we're so much better off when we don't know who's governing. I mean, I'm not saying you don't need to know who your Senator is or who your house member is, or who your city or county council member is, but you don't need to look at them in some sort of celebrity way. I just think that's dangerous, but it's where we are. And, um, and these guys and these gals have made names for themselves. Um, my daughter said it was amazing to her how many entourages everybody had. Everybody had an entourage. Um, when, when Ted Cruz walked into the room, it was like Mike Tyson in the former days. You know, he's got his guy who buys cheetah food with him, and he's got his, you know, his, um, his financial manager with him. He's got his posse with him. He's got his friends he grew up with in, in Catskills. And, you know, they all walk into the ring with him. And you don't know if Tyson's in there somewhere or not. <laughs> you suspect he is because mm-hmm. we're at a boxing match and he's, a, he's the fighter on the card. But you can't find Mike Tyson for the entourage that has him uh, surrounded. Some of the country music singers. I can't think of where I, I saw this on YouTube. Um, you know, they had a concert. And the, the guy walks backstage and there's like 10 or 12 people around him. And it's, you know, these, these handlers and these care are people who, uh, I don't know, provide security, I guess, to some degree. And, um, and it was kind of interesting to hear her talk about, you know, the elected officials all had kind of, um, an entourage with them. Uh, how many chauffeurs are in Washington and how many, you know, members of Congress drive their own vehicle? I, I just think we got to get away from that. And, and I'm not saying Jim George, not a good congressman. But Jim Jordan is known as a guy who fights. Is he a, a guy who does a good job as a congressman? Uh, AOC is known as a lady who fights. Does AOC have a single piece of legislation of which she's really worked hard to get through a subcommittee or a committee or, um, you know, to the floor of the House? I don't know. I don't have any idea. Um, there, there are the worker bees and then there are the brands. And the worker bees tend to be not the brands. The brands tend to be not the, the worker bees. Um how many worker bees have written books? You know, how many Congress, how many members of Congress have written a book? Nearly all of them. You know, uh, how many guests on Fox or how many hosts on Fox News and, and CNN, for that matter, have written a book? Ne- nearly all of them. So it's turned into this, um, I, I don't know, Rev, this, um, I mean, we're a capitalist society and people are going to try and make as much money as they can on whatever fame or notoriety they bring to the table. But, um, but anyway, the Freedom Caucus was kind of the highlight of, um, and I think Haley may have, um, I think he spoke there, Robert did, um, talking about some of the, uh, he basically said, and Robert has shared this with me in days gone by and probably with our listeners, that the days of the staged setup, in other words, candidate walks out on stage, there's an American flag, another American flag, a little bit of greenery. You know, we've got a role of photographers. We got a role of reporters. We got a uh, kind of in the back of the room is some of the um, uh, some some of the beat writers and some of the um, some of the pool reporters that travel along with campaigns. Um, that is kind of um, not not as popular as it was. And I think what um what what I've tried to give candidates advice when when someone will call me and say I'm thinking about running for office. Uh, what do I need to do? And I said not what they've always done. I mean, I think the public is tired of that sort of staged theatric production. Um, And I think Joe Biden, I don't know if you saw this or not, but Politico wrote a big article about Biden and the biggest problem Joe Biden has. I mean, I, I, you know, they don't want to talk about cognitive decline or, or, you know, dementia or some of these other things. I will, you know, I'll absolutely Mm -hmm. tell you the man's in serious cognitive decline, but Politico tries to be a little more respectful and 
they're the dumping ground for, you know, um, left-leaning biases and stories that need to be hawked out of the public square. But they're arguing, Politico is, and some degree I'll agree, uh, I'll accept this, but they're arguing that Biden's biggest problems or problem is he's a relic. He doesn't know how to do it any other way. Then a flag and a flag and greenery and greenery, and he stands out and reads a, and reads a teleprompter. We're going to get into the teleprompter story here sometime this morning. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Elon, <laughs> Elon. Musk was at a tech conference, and, um, and he basically said the president of the country is the person running the teleprompter. <laughs> Because there's no way Joe Biden can coherently think about any issue at hand unless it's on that teleprompter. So um, he's talking about anchor man. You know, somebody were to put the wrong message on the, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, uh, my mom is a bank robber. I mean, he would read that and probably not realize uh, what he had just read. Remember when Hillary said "si," right. you know, S-I-G-H? There was a place on the teleprompter <laughs> as she prepared her remarks that said, you know, that's when she used to sigh. And she actually said, you know, uh, the Republicans suck, Uh, (laughs) Sigh. I'm like, wow, okay. Um, That's where we are. Mm -hmm. But it is where we are. It's a stage production. It's a theatric event. And Dr. Oz benefited from that practical reality. I'm not saying he will or will not be a good good senator. Now, there's some numbers here to pay some attention to. In 2016, there were about 900,000 more registered Democrats in Pennsylvania than registered Republicans. In 2020, that number went from 900,000 to about 666,000. We believe that number is about 581,000. So the Democrats uh, still have an advantage. I mean, it's still, when you look at registered Democrats, there are about 4 million registered Democrats in Pennsylvania today. Um, there's about 3.4 million registered Republicans in Pennsylvania today. So it's still, I mean, if you look at the math and you look at the, the realities of Pennsylvania, it's still a blue-leaning state. I mean, it's it's light purple. It's not reddish purple. It's bluish purple. Um, Ohio's kind of, um, we've had a shift in Ohio, no question about it. Florida is, is the same thing. Uh, for the first time ever, or the first time I can remember, Florida actually has more registered Republicans than registered Democrats. Ohio's about even, uh, about as many registered Republicans as there are registered Democrats. Pennsylvania is heading and trending that way, but it still has a a mathematical advantage for the Democrat. So you've got a uh, a Pennsylvania primary that as we speak, I think the Democrats have 93% of the vote reporting. The Republicans have 95 or 6% of the vote reporting, there have been 1.3 million, roughly, round off, 1.3 million GOP votes cast and about 1.15 million Democrats uh, who have voted in the, um, they got a gubernatorial race and a, uh, a Senate race. Guys got a pacemaker, won a race. I mean, you can win a political race under any condition. Guy laying in the bed, had a pacemaker put in yesterday or the day before yesterday, actually is now the Democrat nominee for, he's their lieutenant governor as we speak, and now he'll be the Senate nominee and go against either Oz or McCormick. Um, someone just texted me a second ago. So who wins? Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know where the votes are outlying. Uh, there's some counties that McCormick did exceedingly well. There's some counties that Oz did exceedingly well. So really and truly, um, if there are 4 or 5% of the votes outstanding, then that means there will be, what, another 150,000 votes cast-ish, somewhere thereabouts. Um, 
I mean, if you've got a, a 1.3 million and there's 1% out, that's 10,000 votes. Am I right? 1% would be 10,000 yeah. uh, votes. So if there's, you know, three, if there's 5% out, 50,000 votes, let's say that, that there looks to me like per my math, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 50,000 outstanding votes. But once again, the, um, that is a projection. It's, it's a closer projection now because they've got some trends and, and, you know, real numbers this morning that they didn't have yesterday morning, but I would rather be Oz. I would rather be Oz because I'd rather be leading the race. I understand the slingshot. I understand the draft. I understand setting up the guy and teammates, you know, kind of lining up. I get all that, but I'd still rather be the leader of the race. Uh, and I'd rather be Dr. Oz with 411,674 votes. than I had McCormick 409,002, which is a difference of 2,672 votes. Um, and, and once again, in a state that has about a, uh, probably 600,000 more registered Democrats, the Republicans, as we speak, we haven't put a bow on this yet, but as we speak, the Republicans have more votes cast in the, Rep- excuse me, in the Pennsylvania primary than the Democrats do. 843-661-0937 is our number. Uh, Dr. Oz, <laughs> endorsed by Donald Trump, uh, former president Donald Trump. I would have loved to go to Vegas. 10 years ago and plopped down. I mean, it would have been, it would have been 5 million to one until you said a Republican primary. And then the person behind the window, the bookmaker would have said 10, 10 million to one Republican primary. Your money in a second. Oh, sure. They would have. And if you'd put a buck down, you'd have 10 million in your pocket today. What ifs? Uh, 843-661-0937. Back in a minute. I tried to look back last night before I went to bed at the historical averages of midterms in Pennsylvania. Uh, Democrats have outvoted Republicans, but I couldn't find a true count uh, by what margin. Uh, We're going to end up probably somewhere uh, at about dead even. As many Republicans vote in the primary as did Democrats in their primary. Um, And that's why I said yesterday to me, uh, America is, I mean, excuse me, Pennsylvania is kind of a microcosm of America. You've got some metropolitan areas in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, excuse me, uh, Pittsburgh. And then you've got a lot of rural area. You've got a, um, a, a diverse workforce. You've got some white collar um, districts. You've got a lot of blue collar. You've got some manufacturing. I mean, it's just, it's a, um, it, it, it really is. It's the state that most resembles America. Um, and if you were looking at, um, what the 2022 midterms look like nationally, I think Pennsylvania is a pretty good, um, excuse me, what the 24 national elections look like. I think Pennsylvania will tell us a lot uh, in November. Does Dr. Oz or David McCormick or the, um, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. Uh, he's the big guy that wears hoodies and tattooed up one side and down the other. He's lieutenant governor of, um, he's kind of built a brand. Here we go with the brands again. <laughs> he's kind of the, the guy next door and um, actually had a stroke Monday, pacemaker installed um, Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken, yesterday morning. So the guy gets a pacemaker installed on the same day uh, he wins the election. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Here is Breeze. Good morning, Breeze. Kid, you know what I would like? I'd like to see every the, the, the governor of South Carolina, every Republican, and every mayor apologize to the people of South Carolina for being too and fool into closing the state down and cost me all of the money they cost me and you and everyone else. That's the first I like to see. 
secondly, I would like to see people like us daily hold our Republican cast off politicians accountable for doing for not doing what they're supposed to do. Secondly, I would like to know, we talked about this yesterday, you and I, what can the Republicans do and why aren't they doing something right now on the national level and the state level about these gas prices and about inflation? And where is their contract with America where they say, if you elect us, it won't be the same old bull crap, but we're actually going to do A, B, C, D, and E, and damn it, do it. That's what I would like to see, brother. Or mind us all punch them in the mouth until they do do what they're supposed to do. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. You know, there was an interesting story yesterday. Our buddy Will folks at Fitz News is pretty creative and um, I mean, he's just, he, he takes jabs, but he does it in a, a very sarcastic and humorous way. But he had a picture of the governor with um, Bucky the Beaver, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Bucky's car stop opened in Florence on Monday and uh, some people around here lost their minds. I hadn't been out there, I guess, you know. Uh, I've, I'll, I'll wait till the crowd dwindles at Disney World. You, you'll go and you'll like it. Well, I mean, I'm sure I will. <laughs> at some point in time, I'll go. I'm just not going out of my way, you know, like that to go to a, a, a convenience store, a supersized convenience store. I hear as much more than that. I don't want to be uh, derogatory about it, but um, folks put on his website that um, while other governors and legislators are cutting the gas tax, you know, on the job, Johnny on the spot. You know, our guys are hanging out with an oversized beaver at an uh, at an oversized convenience store, and uh, and I, I'm not saying there's truth to that, but there is some validity to that story. Um, you know, what are what can be done? And I think Breeze nails it when he asks, you know, what are we going to do, JD Vance? I mean, what has Vance said over and over again? What is our agenda? What are our plans? if and when we gain the levers of government back. And I'm talking about when the Republicans have the House, the Senate, and uh, the executive branch. What what are we going to prioritize? What are some of the things that we're going to make sure we get done, um, that we cram down the Democrats' throat? Um, I just think the days of, and, and Kaufman and I were having this discussion over the air yesterday about the, um, you know, the, the, the desire to have frank candid disagreeable respectful conversations in moving the nation forward but guys i don't know how we do that i mean you know when when chuck schumer majority leader of the senate tweets out yesterday tucker carlson and fox news promote dangerous racist white supremacist lies and conspiracy theories that's cowardly amplifying racist lies and propaganda is simply not debatable it should have no place in america I mean, I don't know how you compromise there. I don't know how you negotiate or how you say, hey, Chuck, what are you doing this afternoon? You know, I'm the minority leader. You're the majority leader. We've got this inflation issue in America. I mean, how many times did he mention inflation? How many times did he mention Wisconsin? How many times did he mention, um, you know, uh, where was it, New York City? Brooklyn. Yeah, Brooklyn, when we had the um, the subway shooting. And we know that guy was a, you know, an African-American racist. We know the guy that killed the innocent people in Buffalo is a racist but but it's not good enough that you know republicans admit that this person who perpetrated the crime uh in buffalo saturday is a racist um we got to be blamed we got to accept responsibility for it i mean tucker and talk radio and fox news i mean anybody that's over the target i mean there's another you know dog whistle there um the reason tucker's public enemy number one limbaugh died and somebody's got to carry the mantle I mean, somebody's got to be over the target. Limbaugh was always attacked because he was always over the target. I mean, a hit dog barks. 
as we like to say, in the country. So when Tucker kind of gets over the target and it begins talking about some of these issues that are very real and relevant, um, th- then he's the guy that's promoted this dangerous, uh, this racist, this white supremacist lies and conspiracy theories. Let me ask you a question. How many of you know what the replacement theory is? Well, the replacement theory, in essence, is that this country historically has been um, white majority. And they are, there's a, an attempt by Democrats. And I'll just ask you, do you agree with this or disagree with you? There's, a dis, there's an attempt by the Democrats to allow immigration, rampant, un, unfettered immigration into the country to try and figure out a way to win elections. In other words, if African-Americans vote at a higher percentage um, Democrat, if Hispanics vote at a higher percentage Democrats, if, if, um, if brown Americans, let's say that, I mean, that's generic, but let's say it, the browning of America, there's been a lot of stories and a lot of talk. That's not offensive, shouldn't be offensive. It's a political reality. But if the browning of America, and that means less white, that, that means we're replacing white people um, with people other than that. In other words, African-Americans, Hispanics, Colombians, Ecuadorians, uh, Nicaraguans, um, Costa Ricans, they come from all over the world. Um, but, but the theory is that the Democrats are convinced that the fewer percentage or the less percentage of white voters there are, the more likely it is they went at the ballot box. And they have uh, eternal control of the levers of our federal government. I mean, we've had we've had callers, we've had Democrat callers in in the old days of uh, of Wake Up Carolina call in and say, Ken, just accept the reality. The country's changing. You guys, you conservative Republicans, you have these demographic headwinds that are inescapable, unavoidable. I mean, you're basically talking about replacement theory. You're talking about allowing Im- immigration to change and affect who votes and who does not vote. I mean, that's why Pelosi runs around talking about, you know, um, voting integrity is a, is a sham. It's really trying to exclude people from participating in the American way of life, voting uh, being a big part of that. It's, it's that. That's where we are. So when Carlson says that there are multiple conversations out there in the political orbit talking about um, a, a dwindling percentage or a declining percentage of white voters, he's everybody's talking about replacement theory. Is that racist? I mean, what am I missing here? I mean, if politicians do the math, and the math says um, the more white people who vote, the more likely it is that Republicans get elected. The less white people that vote, the less likely it is that Republicans get elected. And the Democrats are for... Um, you know, lacks immigration standards and laws because those people historically have proven to not vote for Republicans, but rather cast ballots for Democrats. I mean, that in essence is the replacement theory. What's racist about that? I mean, what does Tucker Carlson say that, 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 that Chuck Schumer believes leads to 10 innocent people dying in a grocery store in Buffalo, New York? The absurdity of this is disgusting. And Schumer said it, and Pelosi said it, and of course, everybody at MSNBC said it, everybody at the New York Times believes it. Um, and, and you said earlier, you asked me a, a second ago, I don't know what it was talking about, and I said no, because these are really, I mean, we've got to a place now that the, the, the winking and nodding of the media, the winking and nodding of academia has become uh, an all effort, an all, just all hands on deck effort. I mean, we, we got to accomplish whatever it takes to win elections. And, and if winning elections means fewer white people voting, then allow whatever sort of immigration 
to take place because we believe on average, we being the Democrats, on average, we do better when less white people vote. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Here is Rujan. Good morning, sir. Good morning. I've been trying to call a couple of times over the past couple of days, but uh, just didn't quite work out. But this morning I call and I'm calling in. Hey, guys, <clears throat> replacement theory is, is not a joke. This is something that I that I first heard about back in 1997. It's a real theory. I was at a I was at a conference with some some uh, individuals that that are now uh, quote unquote in the know or in the uh, in the circle. That, that promote uh, black liberation theology and some other, some other theories that, that are just absolutely racist uh, when it comes to, to uh, being on the other side of the street, black or black versus white replacement theory is just exactly what, uh, what you say it is. It is a, a, an attempt to brown out the, the voter, the voting base in, to, in order to ensure, in order to, uh, to ensure, um, you know, that the Democrats stay in power. And it's not something that's new. It's been there. You know, I, I feel like Chicken Little talking about the, the sky is falling, but this is something that, that is not a joke. It is not something that is being uh, put out there that has been put out there by white folks, that has not been put out by conservative folks. It was put out by Democrats. And and uh, that that's it. It's not it's not a white thing. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a, a thought of, a, of, of promoting you know, white or whiteism or, 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 or Nazism. No, no, this, this is the things that, you know, that are out there. And unless you move in those circles, unless you spend time, unless you are a, a fly on the wall, you won't know this. This is like I'm saying, this is nothing new. This is stuff I've heard for many, many, many years and been saying, but, but people look at you crazy when you say something like that. No, it's not going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. But I'm going to tell you, man, you know, uh, I've been trying to warn people, and they better wake up because there is an active attempt to wipe out white male Anglo-Saxon Protestants to, to just make you irrelevant. And if they do that, then anyone who holds the ideology, the same ideology, will, won't, won't, won't be far behind. Like people like me, people like Carl, you know, we, we're, we're considered, you know, traitors, I guess, or, or, or we don't have the right ideology. We don't have the right, you know, thought process. So we're going to get, we're going to get eliminated too. So yeah, yeah. Fight against it, but don't, you know, uh, and I'm going to say fight against it. I'm not talking about going out and grabbing a gun and shooting up 20,000 people. You know, that, 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 that would make you a nut, but fight against it, you know, and, and when they call out and, you know, start talking about these lies or, or, or telling lies about how you're racist. Like I said, if somebody calls you a racist, sue the hell out of them, make them pay. Make them prove that you're a racist. Nobody's done that yet, except for, you know, the, uh, the, the bakery up there and won $66 million, $66 million from Oberlin College. I mean, come on, folks. It's, it's real. This is, they're not, they, it's been a slow walk for them, but they think they've got victory now. So, you know, we, we, can't, we can't just sit by and just let them do what they're doing. Not Thank, anymore. Thank you, Rujan. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We've got a caller. We'll get back to the caller on the other side. I've held on to this for about a year, knowing that at some point in time it would be relevant and pertinent to the conversation. Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, North Carolina, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, all to some degree are swing states. We've got about 5 million new voters in those swing states 
from 2018 to 2020. In other words, in the 2020 election, those states had about 5 million more voters than from 2018. 94% of the voters added were of color. Only 6% were white voters. Uh, I'm not saying that's good or bad, but isn't that kind of a replacement theory? I mean, when you add 5 million voters to swing states and 94% are of color and 6% are white, that by definition is replacement theory. Let's go to the phone. Here is Charles in Lamar. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. Man, don't don't dog the guy in Pennsylvania with a pacemaker. Some of the finest people I know have pacemakers. <laughs> Good deal. Fair enough. I hear you. Um, I, I just want to throw something out there. You know, your president went to Buffalo yesterday and condemned white supremacy. Uh, duh. Everybody condemns white supremacy except white supremacists, and um, I listened to uh, maybe a year or so, two years ago, uh, Hugh Hewitt interview Hillary Clinton, far left-wing loon Hillary Clinton, about white supremacy on his radio show, and even she estimated that white supremacy in America is represented by about one half of 1% of white men. In other words, less than 50,000 total in all of America. But the president wants to make it sound like everybody with white skin is a white supremacist. And this is the guy that was going to be elected to bring the country back together. So um, just throwing that out there, White, I don't know a white supremacist. Don't know that I really have ever seen one or met one since I, uh, since the the mid '60s in Darlington, I knew one. Um, I, I don't know where all this stuff comes from. Anyway, thank you and have a great day. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. But I mean, once again, the media at some point in time would wink and nod to the liberal, give that liberal a bit of an advantage, but there was some obligation or duty they felt to call things out that are that factually incorrect. The media doesn't do that anymore. I mean, they let Biden get away with going to Buffalo and basically accuse everybody that voted for Donald Trump being a white supremacist. And the reason you still support the MAGA movement, it's not America first any longer because focus groups told them MAGA gives them a better chance to pigeonhole people a certain way. Um, you just got to hope that people are smarter than that. Um, we'll find out in, in about, you know, six months when we get to November of 2022, you know, what the people's thoughts are as it relates to, uh, the lecture that Biden gave yesterday in, um, in Buffalo, what, when he did, I mean, Charles is right. He declared that, that basically half the country, and I would argue 95, probably 99% of the people listening to my voice this morning, um, he lumped you in with the roughly Charles said 50,000 I've read. Where is the best estimate I've seen is somewhere between ten and fifteen thousand true white supremacists in America today that that you know engage in these sorts of activities that that publicly pronounce themselves associated with this white supremacy and the the Aryan race and uh, neo Nazism and all these other sorts of things. It's such a small percentage. Hillary says one half of one percent. I think it's one tenth of one percent. But Joe Biden went to Buffalo yesterday, uh, the, the reconciling president tour, you know, the um, the bringing everybody together tour, oh, yeah. went to Buffalo and basically accused everybody who didn't vote for a Democrat uh, and doesn't watch MSNBC religiously or doesn't read the New York Times 
you're a bunch of not hayseeds, hillbillies, and country boys. You're a bunch of racist and white supremacists. And that's just, I mean, to me, it's disgusting. And, and I find him to be a very vile and indecent man. 843-661-0937. you have time for a call? I think let's, so. let's take a call. Joe in Hartsville. Hey, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, <clears throat> the reason they're so upset at Tucker is he's just like the ladies of TikTok. They take everything the liberals say and, and they put on Facebook and tell what they're going to do to our children in school and this and that. And that's all Tucker does. He, he takes what they say, his own video, and shows it to them. And, oh, my Lord, when you're over the target that hard, they get all upset. Just like Biden in 2015 talking about the replacement theory, getting all these voters in here. And he said, it's going to replace us old white guys. And that's a good thing. You know, and, and everything they do, they take it to extreme, just like abortion. When abortion was first passed, it was what? Safe, legal, and rare. Now it's from conception to birth. They, they take everything to the extreme and they talk about it, but they don't understand that there's such a thing as video. I've said this so many times. They don't understand video, that it captures what they say, and when you show it to them, they deny it. And they want us to, to deny it. And it, it's totally amazing to me. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. Back in just a few moments. You know, I understand it's not the biggest political story. It may not even be a political story, but the most interesting story out there today. And, and I know we've got this this MAGA, you know, this um this this test I don't know. It's kind of a test run as to how effective the MAGA terminology could become. Focus groups, polling has been involved in that. It's a little bit interesting to me, too. It's actually MAGA. They don't refer to it as Make America Great Again. It's kind of the MAGA. Well, it, MAGA. it's the negative connotation associated with MAGA. And it really is aggressive. It's intense. It's in your face. Some people are bothered by that. When you say America first, you think of, oh, I mean, who would be opposed to America first? But Make America Great Again. Uh, defined by the red baseball cap and the MAGA movement. I mean, it's been poll tested. It's been uh, run through focus groups. Uh, I would imagine the Republicans will organize and try to distinguish America first from what the MAGA movement is. But, it, you know, that's the strategy of the Democrats as we head into midterms. They don't have anything else to run on. I mean, it's obvious the guy doesn't know what he's doing. It's obvious the party has gone off the, the reservation and gone to a very extreme leftist position Um you know, they're, they're talking about a woman's right to choose and every single, you know, Republican voter being a white supremacist. I mean, it's, it's detached from reality, but it's what you do when you get desperate. And the desperation um, basically rears its head once your policies fail. And we've watched Democrat policy after Democrat policy after Democrat policy try and be enacted, but just fail miserably. I'll tell you, I've said it before and I'll say it. Um, you know, th- there was a day in my life that I would have voted for Democrats. There's no way in this world that I'd vote for a Democrat today of any fashion, former fashion. I mean, I've got friends who are Democrats. There's no way I would make a contribution to a Democrat um, that, that I would vote for a Democrat. And it's probably unfair to some of these local office holders who aren't caught up in the national party, the national movement. 
but the the politicians with the most power who have D besides their name have just tried to convince the world that I'm a radical, that I'm a despot, you know, that that I'm the dangerous menace to society. At yeah, at best. I mean, I, you know, at best. I mean, if, if if not, I'm a white supremacist and a raging racist. And, you know, I don't know how how do you associate with that brand? I mean, if Chuck Schumer and, and Barack Obama and Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and, uh, you know, the, the high-ranking officials of the Democrat Party, I mean, if they say these ridiculous things, but nobody in any level of government rebukes or challenges that, then you're guilty by association. So, so if I'm guilty by association in your eyes, then you're equally guilty by association in mine. And I'm just not taking the chance of casting a ballot for a Democrat, no matter how good a friend uh, they may or may not be. And I would encourage others to kind of look under the hood and see where this party is and where it's moving. But I want to go back to this, this uh, quandary that I find. Rev, the most interesting story in America today, by far, is what the Fed is going to do to address inflation and a potential recession. I mean, it is so complicated. I have read more about it in the last week, week and a half, uh, then you can imagine the soft landing, you know, the aggressive attempt to squelch inflation. Um, that means rising interest rates. I don't know if you saw this or not, but um, home buyer uh, purchase, purchases of homes is down 12% in the mm-hmm. last 30 days. The raising interest rates. Um, here we go again. You know, Did you hear what the new press secretary said the other day when she was asked about uh, inflation? She went on a rambling word salad and ended up saying uh, tax billionaires and climate change. But I think that's Joe Biden's tweet. I think Biden's tweet basically said, you know, if we raise the tax, or the White House tweet, I think the White House official account said, you know, if we raise tax, but but they have no economic understanding. I mean, that nobody in that White House has any degree of understanding of, of what happens when the economy deals with some of the realities that it's forced to be dealing with. And I don't care what the Fed says. I want to see what the Fed does. I mean, I don't care how many times Jerome Powell goes to Capitol Hill and, and says one thing or another, how many times Janet Yellen goes as Treasury Secretary. Um, you know, the Teddy Roosevelt strategy, uh, they can't apply that. The Fed doesn't have a big stick. I mean, they just don't. Um, they really can't fight inflation because if they fight, in, fight inflation, they're going to lead us into a massive, massive extended recession. I think most of us respect Elon Musk acumen, his understanding of the complexities of global markets. Uh, I don't know if you saw this or not, but he says he predicts that we'll be in a severe recession for at least 18 months. I mean, I said last week, Mm. I thought it'd be a rough couple or three years. I mean, I think we've got a real challenging two or three years uh, waiting ahead. And it's what happens when you do the ridiculous things that we did in the name of economic stimulus, in the name of what we did in regards to COVID. I go back to Peter Van Buren's um, comments, and he's no raging, um, you know, he's not a right winger by any stretch. He's conservative, but but he's a fairly uh, moderate conservative. Uh, when I read the article he wrote in the American Conservative, name of the article, COVID Failure, and his words, I mean, because he doesn't use words like this very often. We were swindled, fooled, bamboozled, and lied to during the pandemic. The public health establishment misled the American people about the value of masking, closures, and social distancing. No one has accepted blame. Understanding how badly we failed is not only an inevitable part of the told-you-so process, but more importantly, I hope, a lesson for the next time. And then he concludes, just ask the Swedes. Sweden has had, in all actuality, 
zero excess deaths associated with COVID-19 in the years 2019 and 2020, excuse me, 2020 and 2021. They have basically, um, they have far outperformed uh, what we've done here in the United States. Uh, in fact, we lead the world with excess COVID deaths or excess mortality deaths um, of all the world, I mean, of all the nations in the world. Now, you could argue some don't keep real good records. There's some questions about Somalia and some of the other Afro-Sudan, some of the African nations. Um, you know, are they as up to speed as they should be on how they quantify success or failure? But um, New York had more, uh, New York had a higher excess mortality rate than Florida did. America had a higher excess mortality rate in 2020 uh, than Sweden did. Sweden didn't shut down. Sweden did some things, but there's no doubt about it. When they got late in the game and they had this um, kind of an outbreak, they had one extended period of time where they had kind of a, a rampant outbreak. But, but when you look back at where we are today, uh, what the Fed is saying, what the Fed is doing, um, I, I guess they have to talk tough. You know, Jerome Powell has to say, we're committed uh, with, with all our sources available, but he doesn't have a lot of he doesn't have a lot of battle gear. He just doesn't. I mean, there, there's not a lot he can do about where we're headed in the macroeconomic. Now, some of the micros, I would imagine, uh, state budgets and state governments, you know, the travesty in all of this. And I've got a sheet here. I mean, you see it. They've got it broken down ages 0 to 14, uh, ages 15 to 64, 65 to 74, 75 and above. Someone asked uh, yesterday, so when you said ages 15 to 64, why such a large a grouping because nobody died. I mean, nobody 15 to 64. Uh, I'm not saying that's unfair. No, people did die, um, but very few people died from 15 to 64. It's only when you get to about age 65, in particular, ages 75 and above, is when you see the biggest threat. I mean, we just didn't have a lot of people die in America 15 to 64 years old, but we shut down the economy. We had macroeconomic stimulus in a way that we have never, ever had it before. And I think, um, as Jackie Gleason says, as Buford T. Justice says, <laughs> uh -oh. 2008 ain't baby crap alongside what I think we're about to see. Uh -huh. Because once again, when the world blew up in 2007 and 8, the Fed had some, some tools. I mean, the Fed had a big stick. They don't have a big stick today. And I don't think they have the tools necessary to fight inflation, and to try and keep us out of a recession, you're going to choose one or the other. We're either going to deal with inflation and go into a deep recession, or we're going to keep paying $4 and what's today's national average? I wrote it down. 450. Uh, $4.48 on Monday, $4.52 on Tuesday, today $4.56. So it's up $0.04 cent, uh, from Monday to Tuesday, $0.04 cent from Tuesday to Wednesday, and it's going to continue to go up. The, the only way to control it, and I think the Fed is on the right track in raising rates, but but are they going to raise rates like Volcker did in, in the Carter malaise or the Carter era? I mean, is that, you know, early in Reagan's administration? Is that the Volcker rule? I mean, are we going to 19 or 20 percent? Uh, we know we're not going to do that. I mean, the country won't stand for 19 or 20 percent interest rates because we're drunk with free money. We're jump, drunk with um with 0% interest rates. The economy has is, is basically been propped up by 0% interest rates. But the great travesty in this is where did the money end up? You know where 90% of the money ended up? In the public sector or in major corporations' uh, bank accounts. 90% of all the trillions of economic stimulus ended up 
in governor, governmental accounts. I, I don't know how to check this. I said last week, uh, I wish I knew that there is no telling how much money school districts, higher education, state governments, local governments uh, have in their bank accounts today. I mean, there is no, I don't have any way to measure that in relation to historical averages, but I would imagine, I mean, if we could be privileged to that information, it would astound us how much money governments all over this country have, and it came from economic stimulus. We know the number in South Carolina. $8.9 billion of economic stimulus made its way into South Carolina. $6.3 billion of the $8.9 billion made its way to some government agency. Damn, that's crazy. That's absurd. That's ridiculous. We should be marching in the streets today in relation to that number. And I would argue the ballots or the majority of the ballots that didn't end up in the public sector probably ended up in the bank accounts of the 100 or 200 biggest companies uh, in the country. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Uh, good morning. Uh, great broadcast, as always. I've got a couple of statements, as always, but then I've got a question for you, Ken. Uh, I, I agree with you. Uh, what they've uh, done is uh, akin to uh, the in the in the 18th and 19th century, they bled patients. If if you got a fever, they bled you. If you got chills, they bled you. And uh, I think that's what they're doing, and they they would and physicians would do that to the point where they kill people. And I think that's what they're trying to do. I think uh, Mutt, uh, Elon Musk is optimistic at 18 months. I hope he's right. It's not. It's only 18 months of severe uh, recession. But uh, I think if, we're, if we get on that slope, there's no telling how far down it will slide. But uh, the one thing that they could do to ameliorate uh, uh, ameliorate this uh, inflation is to start production, cut the regulations, and allow oil companies to and encourage oil companies to drill and produce oil because that's producing real things. And if you're producing real things, well, you can put some fluidity in the in the uh, marketplace. But you, if you're not producing more, you don't want to do that. And that's exactly what we did. We produced less and put more money in there. So now our money is worth less. Duh. But uh, there's something else that's come to my mind uh, that I have some questions about. Maybe you can find out or you might even know about it already. Is this ESG thing uh, where uh, it uh, controls states' credits ratings and individual and company credit ratings where they can borrow money according to their uh, social and economic and global warming thing. And this other thing, global warming, you can stop global warming anytime. All it takes is a volcano or two to blow up or a few nuclear uh, devices to go off. And we can cool down the planet to ice age uh, levels if we needed to. So that's just a totally false monster under the bed that, uh, that, that's been invented to scam people out of more money. Thank but you, Mike. I appreciate like that. Well, I mean, ESG basically is environmental, social, and governance. Um, and companies are, I guess, increasingly or by increasing numbers – 
being required or, or being um, asked that when you apply for some of these um, uh, loans or, or you know, uh, shareholder, be investors in the shareholder, if you're a private company, you're applying, you're applying for loans, uh, the government is basically suggesting, uh, encouraging, uh, eventually mandating of banks to give you some sort of ESG score. In other words, um, what are the non-financial factors that, that apply to your business um, to make sure that, um, that, we're, that your business model is sustainable, that it's friendly to the environment, that it has a kind of a social component um, to that? It's basically a system of, of measurement on how to value the sustainability of a company um, by these three specific categories, being environmental, social, and governance. And, um, and I think we'll get to a place probably in the next three to five years where you have a score, you have an ESG score, and it'd be like your FICA score, your credit rating. And, um, you know, when a, when a shareholder invests in a company, um, th- there will probably be incentives. I mean, I would imagine if the Democrats stay in charge, there will probably be incentives. The banks will probably incentivize to loan money to companies who have high ESG scores, companies who have low ESG scores that, that aren't as committed to this um, environmental standard of the Democrats, this social standard. Will you get punished if you have a low I, score? I think you will, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're headed to a day <laughs> where if you've got a, a 100 ESG score, you borrow money at um, you know prime. If you've got a 50 ESG score, you borrow money at a percent and a half above prime. Yeah, I, I think we're getting there. Mm. Now, now, that's if the Democrats stay in charge. I am hopeful that the Republicans gain control of the government and the Republicans reinstitute some degree of sanity in the way we're governing ourselves. And I hear a lot of Republicans say things like this, but, but Breeze keeps harping on, what are we going to do? Well, I just said a second ago, forget what the Fed says. Let's watch what the Fed does. Forget what the Repu- I'm tired of hearing Republicans tell me what their opinions of X, Y, or Z of. ESG would be a good example. I mean, I've heard a million Republican politicians tell me what their opinions are of ESG, these environmental, social, and governance standards. What is your policy toward? I mean, do, do we rebuke the po- do we rebuke it uh, in, a, in an opinion, or do we uh, adopt policy or embrace policy that basically you know kind of throws this in the trash and says no, we're not going to handicap investments. We're not going to demand to banks or command to banks to to have ESG scores as part of their compliance. Uh, I mean, banks have oversight, but banks have underwriters. Bank have a banks have a lot of people that come into the bank and and review loans. You know, is this a good loan? Why did you not? Uh, I'll give an example. I mean, I know a bank here in South Carolina, who was challenged because some of the loans, they didn't have enough loans to African-Americans. Uh, they ended up explaining, well, not a lot of African-Americans came in and asked for loans. But, but the, you know, when, when, when Biden got elected and they implemented a new, you know, new re- oversight and review and uh, the banking regulators in general is what I'm talking about here, but they had to basically explain that the reason we don't have a high percentage of loans on our books to African-Americans. For whatever reason, a lot of African-Americans don't come to our bank asking for for loans. But, yeah, I do believe we'll be um, sooner than later if the Democrats stay in charge. Now, if the Republicans can um, grow a set and kind of, kind of, you know, and, and be who we aspire them to be, um, I think we can push back on some of this nonsense, these ESG standards that are just absurd. I mean, absolutely absurd. Take a break. Back in just a couple of minutes. 
Still no change in the vote total. Pennsylvania GOP Senate race. Dr. Oz, believe it or not, in the lead, 411,674 votes. Uh, David McCormick, 4,009,002 votes. So 2,672 votes Man, separate. Dr. Oz, of course, 31.3 to 31.1 percent. I mean, it'll obviously be within uh, a margin that commands or, or demands a recount. So we'll have a recount. Um, there's some uh, mail-in ballots that'll be counted sometime uh, early morning this morning. I would imagine we'll know a winner by Friday. I doubt we know today. I doubt we know tomorrow. It'll really? probably be Friday before we find out. The winner got a recount. I mean, when it gets this close, it's going to trigger an automatic recount. Um so, you know, Trump's endorsement of Dr. Oz um, kind of right now is holding uh, firm at 2,672 vote lead, but unbelievably close in Pennsylvania. Let's go to the phone. Here's Donna in Florence. Good morning, Donna. You're on the air. Hey, uh, Kim, I have a homework assignment for you. Back in 2008, 2009, when we went through the last recession, there was a study that um, one of the broadcasters, it was either on CNN or Fox presented, and it was about uh, the previous recessions, how long each one had lasted. They showed the trends, and then it was a prediction also of what the next recession would look like. And it was astronomical, the period of time from the beginning of the, of the uh, recession to the end of the recession. I mean, it was several years. If I remember right, it was like five or six years from beginning to complete end of it and getting out of it. So I was wondering if maybe you could find that information, look it up, and share that with the viewers. That's all I have to say. Have a good day. Thank you, Don. appreciate that. Yeah, I'll see what I can find out about the predictions that were made in 2000, 2007, 2008. I want to, you know, I want to quantify my statements by saying I'm not an economist. You know, I'm, I'm not someone who has a uh, an academic understanding of, of our economy and its ebbs and flows. Uh, I'm, a, I'm kind of a guy who's lived in the real world um, for 58 years, uh, all of his adult life being responsible for running a business and, and trying to understand uh, economic forces, both good and bad. And, and something, I just sense something. You can't um, argue for policy on a hunch you have or some sort of instinctive um, quality you believe you have. Um, but I felt this way in 2007. I feel that way again and something tells me this is going to be much deeper than even 2007 because 2007, I mean, it was an identifiable problem. I mean, we had people buying homes that couldn't afford the homes. Uh, we had banks lending money to people who couldn't pay the note back. I mean, it, when you really break it down, I mean, I'm not saying it's as simple as that, but, but it was a housing, it was a subprime lending problem. It was the Community Reinvestment Act on steroids. It was home ownership being the American dream. And we uh, got irrationally exuberant about, you know, those stark realities. There are so many things to be concerned about today that they're, they're you know, the Fed's balance sheet. I mean, we put up a chart or a graph um, last week or the week before. When you chart the S&P 500 from 07, really and truly from about 1990, it's all about the Fed. I mean, if you, if you correlate the Fed's activism, by that I mean um, it, it's uh, it's quantitative easing, it's bond buying, it's uh, it's it's uh, you know propping up federal debt. I mean, when, when you take the Fed and its balance sheet, um, and and the more activists they become, the more valuable the S and P 500 become. And right now, we're taking in more government revenue than we ever have, and our federal debt still exceeds the government revenue we're taking in. So we don't have a plan 
to balance the budget. That's why I asked the question at the debate. Is there any plan uh, you can imagine that addresses the federal debt, the annual debt? I'm not talking about um, the deficit. Excuse me. I'm talking about the deficit, not the debt. Is there any plan you've got that, that you know, doesn't force politicians to deal with Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid? And, and I'll give Congressman Rice credit. No. I mean, there's not. I mean, I'll give him a, you know, a credit for answering the question in a very honest fashion. We're not going to deal with the federal debt unless the annual debt, unless we reform um, Social Security and Medicare. And I just don't, I mean, we're not having adult conversations about some of these problems that persist. And, and I get it. Biden goes to Buffalo and he, and he calls half of America racist and white supremacy and the replacement theory and Tucker Carlson and Fox News and talk radio. We can only get rid of Tucker Carlson, Fox News, and talk radio, I could deal with inflation. I could deal with the economic woes of, of America. Nobody buys that. Nobody believes that. But but the press kind of continues to halt that that narrative. They perpetuate that you know dishonesty as a as a legitimate claim. I mean, you know it's dishonest. I know it's dishonest. Um, but but the press still has an obligation to propagandize for the American political left. But, but what I'm saying is, so we know that's not the truth. I mean, that, that most of Americans, even liberals, know that Tucker Carlson's not to blame for what happened in Buffalo. Talk radio's not to blame for what happened in Buffalo. That, that's, a, um, that's an issue of mental illness, and it is an issue of racism. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He's one of the 12,500 racists, full-blown you know, racists wishing to cause harm to America. Um, I'll tell you this. Uh, I, know, I know some racists that don't want to cause harm to anybody. You know, I'm not defending racism, but, but I, I know some racists in my life, uh, but, but they don't want to load a gun up, go kill innocent people. I'll ask you this. How many white people with a CWP and armed would not have tried to stop that white killer from mowing down African-American, um, you know, shoppers at the grocery store? Seriously, ask yourself that. I mean, if you're a leftist, if you're a liberal, ask yourself that question. How many white friends do you have who carry a gun who would not do everything within their power to kill that person, killing innocent African-Americans? I mean, that's the nation. That's the nation in general. Um, that, that, that's who, that, it, it's a little bit like Rujan says. I mean, they perpetuate this, that, this falsity. That, that are, we, we hate one another. We despise one another. You know, where uh, the blacks wish the white was to go away and the whites wish the I mean, I just don't buy that for a second. So, so, so I don't try to spend probably as much time as you do on trying to interpret or not, you know, what was said, what was done. I, I think there are issues far more important than that because I think the public believes that that's nonsense. What, what the public doesn't understand is some of these macroeconomic forces that I think are going to really fundamentally change the way the next generation lives its life. I believe this. I think 07 and 08 scarred my generation, but it didn't fundamentally change the way I live my life. I mean, it scares the bejesus out of me when I think of it. You know, and um, and if you had any debt and exposure and you were invested in anything and you're a business guy and, you know, you're, you're depending on um, normalcy and business cycles to prevail. I mean, I can remember um, thinking to myself out loud, if I were a smoker, I would have chain smoked for about six or eight months because it was nervous. I mean, it was very, very, very nervous times, especially if you're self-employed and trying to keep a, a business afloat. I think what we've got coming our way is going to be a hundred times more devastating than what we dealt with 
in 07 and 08 because we could contain that. I mean, it was housing. Uh, I mean, the housing obviously led to the market selling off, and that obviously led to the financial meltdown. I mean, it, it always has reciprocating and, and kind of a domino effect. But, but when I look at the balance sheet of the Fed and I look at where I think the economy is today, I don't pay attention to GDP numbers. I don't pay attention to deployment numbers. I think those books are cooked. They've been cooked for a long time. They, they've distorted some of the modeling and some of the ways they, you know, the, the way we come up with an unemployment number is completely and totally disingenuous and misleading. The way we calculate GDP and, and inflation, CPI, and all these other sorts of things. I mean, it's government talk. Because government speaks what it is. And I don't put a lot of stock or faith in it. Um, but, but I'm telling you, some I sense, as Elon Musk does. I mean, when he says that people pay him attention, when I say it, that's a guy that says ain't y'all a lot. And you can't trust a guy that says ain't y'all as much as he does or what some of the economic forces or what some of the prevailing forces are going to be and, and where we'll end up a year from now. Um, but I just see tough times ahead. And, and I'm far more concerned about that because it is a reality. It is a stark reality that everybody is going to eventually have to deal with. And when Biden goes to Buffalo and sticks his chest out and, and professes to chastise, you know, half of America for being racist, uh, that's the same guy that said, put y'all back in chains. I mean, imagine that. I mean, imagine, I mean, this, this guy's president of the United States. He goes to Buffalo. He, he calls half of America racist. And he's the same guy that said, put y'all back in chains. I mean, the, the, the absurdity of that. So I don't, I mean, it doesn't upset me because I think Biden's a lightweight. I mean, I think he's a dunce. He is the president. That's a little bit scary and dangerous. Um, but 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 the realities are not what he says they are. In the economy, here's my concern. Biden's narrative is far more threatening than what reality is in, in race relations in America. I mean, Biden's trying to convince his base that every white person out there is a racist and would, uh, you know, would ship you back to wherever it is you came from, put y'all back in chains. I mean, how many white people really put y'all back? I mean, the, the absurdity of that. I mean, I don't even give it the time of day. But some of these economic matters, <laughs> I think the reality exceeds the narrative. You see what I'm saying? There's kind of an inversion there. What Biden says is hyperbole. It's not true. It's not real. Most serious people, I'd like to believe all serious people, but, but I'll give myself a little wiggle room. Most serious people know that he's simply playing to his base and he's trying to inspire turnout. But when you go to the economy and they say, well, I mean, everything's good. No, nothing's good about this economy. Trust me, there, there's not one single fundamental that somebody who understands the economy would be encouraged about or by. Let's go to the phone. Here's Bert in the PD. Hey, Bert. Good morning. You know what I keep wondering over and over is how is it that we live in a country where the law says you can't discriminate Based on your race, based on your sex, based on your religion, you cannot discriminate by law. But you look at any program that they come up with, every single one of them, discriminate by race or by sex. Every single program they come up with. If you ask me, this is just Obama continuing his transference of wealth because everything's being taken and handed out to people who – really shouldn't have it and that's why we end up with these bubbles because you can't hand things to people who can't pay it back 
Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. Let, let me let me give you G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip. Then we'll take our break, Mike. Here's G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip. There, there's an advertisement on this station. I don't think it's on our show, but there's an advertisement on this station or another station I've heard where it says, um, we have your loan ready for that, you know, major purchase. We have your loan ready for that vacation. We have your loan ready for, um, you know, that that unexpected doctor's appointment or putting tires on your truck. Some of the things that people shouldn't have to borrow money for. And, and that, I know that's a weird way to look at it, but we live in an economy now where, uh, you know, 75% of Americans can't go on a vacation unless they borrow money. They can't buy a new washing machine unless they go borrow money, put it on a credit card. Something's broken about that economy. Something's out of sorts about that economy, and it's the it's the realities of where we are today. Um, I saw something the other day. The the average house payment in America today exceeded, I think, twelve hundred and fifty bucks. Uh, the first time in American history that the average or the median, I'm sorry, the median house payment in America today is twelve hundred and fifty dollars. I mean, the math just doesn't work. The average car payment. In America today, exceeds six hundred dollars a month. We don't live in a how much does it cost any longer. We live in a how much do I have to pay back per month economy. So for you to carry your two kids and wife or husband to Disney World, you got to go to the bank and borrow money. So something's broken about that economy, and I think we're 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 further down this road than our elected officials would ever ever like to admit. There's not a single fundamental that I find encouraging when I look at some of the metrics and measures, and, and I think I have not an academic understanding, but a real-world understanding, there's not a single metric out there that, that I think I understand that I'm encouraged by. Not even low unemployment? We have a very low it's number. It's a bogus unemployment number. We've got 2 million people. We've got 2 million fewer people working today than we did pre-pandemic. I mean, there are 2 million people that were in the workforce before the pandemic hit, that have decided, uh, and I guess this is a luxury I've never been uh, exposed to, a luxury of not having to go to work. It's kind of interesting to me. Um, these people are deciding to not go back to work. Wow. These people, I mean, the work age, I'm not talking about 75-year-olds. I'm not talking about moms having babies. I'm talking about, you know, workforce-eligible people today. There's 2 million less in the workforce. The, the, there are more young people under the age of 25 not working than ever in American history. Let me say that again. More young people under the age of 25 not going to work than there ever has been in American history. And Biden stands behind a podium when he's not calling half the country racist and says, you know, we're at full employment. You know, unemployment number is at 2.7 or 8 or 9 percent, 3.1 percent. That is a bogus number. That's an absolute bogus and make-believe number. It's similar to the calculations on GDP and, and consumer price index, the way we measure inflation. I mean, it's government speak. That they, they, they kind of they have a problem. They create a language to mislead about the problem they've created. And half the country's gullible enough to say, well, I mean, unemployment's only 2.9 percent. How was unemployment 2.9% post-pandemic when 2 million people who had jobs pre-pandemic are not back in, in the workforce? 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a minute. You know, I'm positive the Walmart CEO, Doug McMillan, is a smart man. You don't get where he is without being, you know, a bright man, a very capable man. But yesterday, Walmart stock sold off about 12% yesterday, worst day since 19. 19- 87. His comments were, and I quote, bottom line results were unexpected and reflect the unusual environment. 
How, how was that unexpected? I mean, if we're in, a, in an unusual environment, then he says U.S. inflation levels, particularly in food and fuel, created more pressure than the company had predicted. You, you got to know that if people are paying that much more for food, that much more for fuel, they're not going to have as much disposable income to go to Walmart and buy whatever it is they buy when they get paid on Fridays. I mean, this is G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip. Doug McMillan um, is a very, very, very capable, smart, and strategic man. But bottom line, results were unexpected and reflect the unusual environment. If you know there's an unusual environment, you've got to uh, 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 expect some sort of impact to your bottom line numbers. And Walmart had the worst financial quarter it's had since 1987. Um, I don't need Larry Summers. That doesn't seem like a good sign. Well, I mean, that's Joe Blow. I mean, that's the guy that's filling up his truck with gas once a week and going to work and doing the best he can to uh, you know, to kind of build a life for himself. And that's just some of the some of the realities. And I think those realities are percolating in a way that the experts aren't even imagining. Let's go to the phone. Here's Larry in the PD. Hey, Larry. Hey, good morning, guys. Man, uh, you kind of darted left and right there a little bit on me from where I, when I called in uh, yesterday morning. But a uh, <laughs> couple things. <laughs> You're talking about all the recessionary pressures and all these things going on. And, and the real thing is to say is, okay, well, what can we do about it? What can, you know, an individual like me do? Um, I, I coach people one-on-one with their finances. That's kind of my little thing that I do. And, uh, you know, trying to get people set up that you can do well, whether we have inflationary pressure or recessionary pressure is not easy. Uh, inflationary pressure benefits the borrower. And when you think that there's going to be a lot of inflation, then you should be borrowing a lot of money. I know that most financial advisors don't give that advice, but that's the truth. The problem is when you're in a recessionary pressure, you need to be hoarding your cash because the prices of assets are going to go down. And if you've got cash, then you can, you know, scoop up some bargain basement deals. I think with Walmart, why they say it was unexpected was there's two issues to it. Higher prices can benefit Walmart if they have something to sell. I think what was unexpected were the supply chain issues. I don't think they thought they would have as hard a time getting their hands on product. And they were thinking, well, it'll cost more, but we'll sell a little more. Wrong. When you don't have it on your shelf, you can't sell it at a higher price. And I think that's what's what's really going to get these retailers is they were projecting yeah, we'll, we'll have a little bit lower demand, but we'll still have product to sell. I think they have less product than we have demand. So to answer Ken's question, what one bright spot might there be in this is that demand is still exceeding supply because supply is low right now. Not that demand is high, but supply is low. It might help us stave off a, a bad, bad recession. But probably not. But it might be the one little place where we get some hope. <clears throat> and the one thing that I was going to tell you where they're telling you to go borrow money to go on vacation and all these kind of things, I wish somebody would go tell my wife that because she thinks everybody else is just living better than I am. And I try to explain to her they're doing it on a borrowed dime. <laughs> no question about it. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. I've seen Larry's Facebook post. I'm going to give him a plug here. Uh, yeah, but I will. Um, you know, Larry's coaching people. Larry has an understanding of the economy. Uh, we have this on-air uh, relationship and kind of an off-air relationship. We text one another about um, certain things that he's interested in, certain things I'm interested 
interested in. Um, I was going to tell Larry on the air one day, you know, the people that need financial coaching are not those that don't have money. Those that don't have money don't have a lot of options. Um, it's when you start making a little bit of money and you have a little bit of liberties and freedoms and a little bit of flexibility where you do stupid things. Uh, it's almost like, uh, you know, I had a buddy of mine tell me one day, you know, a broke man can't do anything stupid because he doesn't have the money to do anything stupid. I believe the people that need financial coaching are those who are making a little bit of money and are trying to improve the quality of their life and their lifestyle. And uh, along with that comes um, you got to place limits on yourself. You got to understand, uh, hey, I, I, there was a day in my life I had no money. Now I've got a little bit of money, so I've got some choices to make. When you don't have any money, you just don't have a lot of choices, right? I mean, you're a college kid. What's the old story? Ramen noodles and the cheapest beer at the convenience store sold. You buy, buy the, the case, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll tell on myself here, natural light. I mean, I drank more natural light than you can imagine when I was young because I couldn't afford, you know, Michelob Ultra or, or any of the other premium beers, so to speak. But once you start making a little bit of money, Maybe the Michelob Ultra isn't quite good enough. Maybe I can go buy that IP. You know what I mean? There's another um, There's another something out there that we want. And I've always felt that the people who really need financial planning and financial coaching are those who are making a little bit of money. But, but, ah, take a break. Back in a minute. No change at all to the May 17 primaries. Pennsylvania GOP Senate race. Believe it or not, Dr. Oz is leading by, what, 2,672 votes. He's at 31.3%. Uh, David McCormick, 409,002 votes, 31.1%. That is Hale's uh, firm since we went on the air. I checked the numbers at about 440 this morning. There's been no update since 440. I would imagine at some point in time this morning, they'll start counting the mail-in ballots, and the numbers will begin to change 95 96% reporting Dr. Oz with a lead of about 2,600 and 72 votes. So so it's not it's the mail-in ballots. It's not like they stopped counting in the middle of the night. You know, we've heard of that before. Yeah, you know, we have heard that in Pennsylvania, as a matter <laughs> of fact. And, um, but, but no, I think they, um, they counted all the votes cast. They just have not counted, from what I'm understanding, some of the mail-in ballots. They'll begin counting those it's today. It's so close. But it's going, to, it's, going to, I mean, it's going to be an automatic recount because it's within the, I don't know, the margin that requires Pennsylvania to have an automatic recount. Um, someone texted me earlier, who would you rather be? I'd rather be the guy in the lead. I mean, I don't care if it's one vote or 10 million. I want to be the guy in the lead. Last lap of the race, I want to be the guy. Maybe they slingshot. Maybe they draft. Maybe the Hendrick team gets together and passes me. <laughs> some NASCAR and I finish fifth. But, yeah, I want to be in the lead uh, when it counts most. So 96 you got to be there at the end. It, you better believe it. No question about it. So a closely, a closely watched race, Trump's endorsement is involved in this. That's why I guess it's so intriguing. And you've got another celebrity seeking public office uh, that being dr oz hey i gotta tell you all this talk in the last segment about the economy you're bumming me out again and well i mean i'm not an economist i'm not an I, expert I know, I'm, I'm not a guy that has you know an academic understanding of the economy and where we are and where we're potentially headed and I, but I'm, I'm not just saying this but you know I, I trust your gut on things like this i mean you've been been right on a lot of these issues been wrong on some i like to talk about the things i've been right about not the things i've been but but when you talk about about. how bad it could potentially be here over the next few years i mean that that is concerning well i mean you're bumming me out here's the deal and we got a guess we'll get our guess here in two seconds i'll just give you my my analogy or my 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 take on things we we said this for two weeks macroeconomic stimulus leads to inflationary pressure Every time, 
not some of the time, not most of the time, all of the time. And when you inject trillions of dollars of liquidity into an economy, you're going to create inflation. That inflation makes you poor, makes me poor, makes Mike poor, makes everybody listening to my voice poor. And the other, the, the only fork in the road is to continue down the road of macroeconomic stimulus that leads to rampant inflation or to do what the Fed says it can do, and that is create a soft landing by raising interest rates that deal with inflation. But I think it's going to require a recession. I think it's going to require a pretty significant recession. So the fork in the road, there is no get out of jail free card. We made this decision uh, because of COVID. I think it was reckless. I think it was careless. And I think other people are kind of coming around to what we said in real time. But but the fork in the road doesn't lead to, there, there's not one path to prosperity. There's one that leads to continued rampant inflation and another that leads to a pretty significant recession. That's my take on it. Now, once again, I didn't go to the Harvard School of Business. I didn't go to Darton or, or Warden or, or Stanford Business School. I learned what I learned, um, basically going to work every day and running a business. And, and sometimes I think we need more of that sort involved in some of these decision-making processes than we do those who have an academic and intellectual understanding of, of the economy. So I'm not trying to bum anybody out, but, but once again, um, uh, someone who lives in the real world and deals with the economy in a very non-academic fashion, I think we have two choices. None are good. Neither of those two are a good choice, and I think it's going to be a pretty significant recession. Uh, anyway, that's uh, I'm not trying to bum you out, yeah. but that's the way I see things. Hey, um, South Carolina Commissioner of Agriculture, Hugh Weathers, is with us this morning. Um, Commissioner, how are you? Hey, Ken. Listening to your economic class. Yeah, and I'm not trying to bum you out either, my friend. I'll, I'll tell you the one thing that um that I'm bullish on is farmland, farmland with water in particular, uh, because if we do head to the abyss, you can um agriculture will always be an important ingredient and component well, of our economy and 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 the global economy. We're finding out that that now. You're right about that. You know, our economy, we all know that is based on seventy percent of consumer buying and now most of it is buying services well agriculture produces products it's called food it's called fiber now it's called energy uh with ethanol and uh, that part of the economy that produces uh things that we consume is very critical it, you know right behind military strength our agriculture and our food production within our own borders uh, is right up there. And I know you've heard me say that before, that uh, national security is dependent upon agriculture as much as any. Now, I will say this, you know, I, we've been through some rough, rough times, uh, you know, go back five years with floods and freezes and pandemics. Uh, so the same pressures that you and I and your listeners feel at the grocery aisle, the farmers across South Carolina feel many times more, many more, uh, because the cost of farming to put that seed in the ground and grow it out is just about doubled uh, this year over last year. And we are feeling it in food prices. We will feel it for a while. And I'll say this, the, the pressure that farmers are feeling on their prices, on the fertilizer, it did not start with uh the, the extra COVID money put out there. It, it began a couple of years back with some, some 
weather events that impacted the production of fertilizer. But now I'm like you. I'm not much of an economist. But here's a couple of things you can always count on. The law of supply and demand, you can't see it, but you can't break it. Um, you know, if there's too much of stuff facing too few of goods, like too much money facing fighting for too little of something, you know, the price of it's going to go up. And you're exactly right. That's what we're seeing. Um, wait a minute. You're supposed to ask me questions. Well, I mean, I, and, and I got a couple because I'm, I'm very interested. Well, I mean, I know. I mean, you're doing exactly what I would do if given the opportunity <laughs> to address a, a radio audience. And um, but but I do want to ask you this. I mean, as someone who is responsible for safeguarding and advancing agriculture in South Carolina, um, what what are some of your concerns and and, and what what convinces you there's reasons to be optimistic looking looking down the road well our consumer research we do a lot of that to know what you're thinking and people who are buying farm products are thinking and after the pandemic there's an increased desire on on shoppers consumers part to know who's growing that food for them for them their family grandchildren like me uh how are they growing it? What are their farming practices? Can I rely on it being safe uh, and and available? Uh, so that's the that presents new opportunities for South Carolina farmers because the more people are aware of how that food's being grown, then the more they'll want it from South Carolina, from their neighbors, not from across the world, and maybe not even across the country. Uh, because we're importing too much food into this country now. And so we want to uh, encourage that next generation of farmers uh, and agriculture in general to step up and meet some of the uh, the new challenges that are coming in this post-pandemic world. Commissioner Weathers, you were born and raised in Bowman. I was born and raised in Pamplico. We can talk this way. There was a day that farming was all about row crops. You have made a concerted effort to try and diversify farming in the state of South Carolina. Um, what sort of diversification has happened while you've been um, Commissioner of Agriculture? Well, let me tell you why that's important. You know, your sponsor this morning is yours and my good friends, the Swing Call Farms. When they expand, and they have over the last years that I've known them, when they expand, they need more acres of crops that generate thousands of dollars per acre in gross revenue, not profit, but revenue, uh, more revenue per acre than does corn, soybeans, uh, peanuts. So the more we can diversify the crop mix in South Carolina, then the more economic uh, growth we get in agriculture. Let me tell you, the certified South Carolina program that we started, uh, gosh, 12, 15 years ago, we measure that as well. We do a lot of things that know if we're doing things right in the department. Uh, in like 2018 versus versus five or six years earlier, South Carolinians are buying 175 million more dollars of fruits and vegetables uh, and things that are impacted by that local branding uh, than they were then. Now, you know, the, the green corn and soybeans and cotton. They're not affected by our branding program because you don't buy them. You buy the finished product. You buy a shirt. You buy a steak. You buy a pork chop. But those products that we have an impact on, we're seeing more of that demand because of what we're doing. So the, the crops in general, we're obviously growing more peanuts where we used to grow 
tobacco. Uh, we are encouraging more greenhouse farming in South Carolina because that is a way of the future, that people want that uh, fresh tomato every month out of the year. Uh, the seasonality of what we eat is not what it was when you and I were growing up. Uh, we want the same thing every day and want it quality. So uh, that is how we're trying to grow the uh, the farm economy of South Carolina. How important is the family farm to this? We, we see mass consolidation in sectors of the economy. I'm not sure it's good uh, for the consumer, but airlines and uh, I'm thinking of lumber businesses. There's only three or four or five different opportunities out there. But when you look at farming in South Carolina, I'm almost nostalgic and I'll almost get romantic about, you know, growing up in a farm town, being around farming all of my life. Um, it has become a business. There's no question about it. But the business of family farming, um, where is that in relation? Uh, I don't want to say the rest of the country, but how important is the business of family farming to South Carolina agriculture? Well, it is still, and I think will always be the primary um, business structure of family farms. Now, you know, people say, how many corporate farms are there? Well, most of them are because even like my farm, it's a family corporation. Uh, but that foreign ownership, I get asked a lot about how much farmland does Bill Gates own in South Carolina. I, I don't think he owns any. Uh, he, he came in and made some purchases in Florida and Georgia. And maybe finding out that growing food and farming is not quite as easy as making computers. But uh, the family farm, and that's a that's a challenge now because you know the average farm in South Carolina is near the whole. Some of those operations are that multiple generation, like my farm. My nephew uh, is the fifth generation on our farm, and that you have a lot of those in the PD. Uh, but we have to find those young folks willing to be that first-generation farmer. And we're trying our best uh, to encourage. We have what's called an entrepreneurship center in the Department of Agriculture where if someone brings a, a great idea, we uh, invest a little bit in that uh, young man, young woman, couple, uh, to see if their idea can make South Carolina agriculture even more vi vibrant uh, in the coming years. So everything that we today at one point was somebody's entrepreneurial idea whether it's a cell phone or ipad or anything um, so we're looking for those ideas that will make yours and my life uh better because agriculture is better than the next decade or two the last question i want to ask and uh and i know the answer to this because i keep up with politics but um when we talk about agriculture we talk about what the south carolina commissioner of agriculture's job is uh most of the hot button political issues today are abortion or taxes or or racism um but you still have to solicit support from the voters of south carolina the next south carolina commissioner of agriculture will serve at the pleasure of the public so really and truly when it comes to to public servant and the role of the voter it's the same whether you're running for congress senate governor president or commissioner of agriculture you are running for re-election do you have any opposition and how can people find out more about you and the job you've done and potentially support your campaign well that's a great question and yes i have two opponents in the primary on june 14th uh they have their reasons for running it's not my business to know what they are but uh, we have our website at hughweathers.com uh, where you can learn uh, a good bit about what 
I've done in some of my positions. But really, if you want to know, the Department of Agriculture is an extension of everything I've tried to do over the last uh, 15 to 17 years that I've been there. So if you go to agriculture.sc.gov and you see what the Department of Agriculture does for the average consumer, then I'm pretty sure most people would say, well, you know, we don't need to change uh, change the captain right now. This ship's rocking along pretty good. And let me say this, over the next couple of years, uh, all of the challenges that farmers have had, uh, some of them are now coming from Washington. Uh, and and I've seen how Washington can work positively with the people we work with on behalf of farmers. But right now, some of the regulatory pressure, uh, some of that top-down uh, pressure coming out of Washington, uh, we need to have steady leadership that I've provided for a number of years for our farmers and really for the consumers because as agriculture goes in South Carolina, uh, sometimes that's how our economy goes. So, you know, it is the if you take all of agribusiness, agriculture and forestry, it's the largest part of our economy. So people don't realize that, but that's okay. We just think it can be even more. So right now we just don't need to make any changes. Uh, the two gentlemen running against me, I'm sure they're fine people. Uh, don't know what they would bring to the department that is not there now. So if people go to hughweathers.com, uh, you can learn a little bit about me. And uh, let me know if they've got issues. They can let us know questions that they have just by way of the website. Okay. Well, Commissioner, thank you for joining us this morning. I will say this. We're not in the business of endorsement. But uh, but if anybody asks me who I'm voting for for South Carolina Commission of Agriculture, I will clearly say Hugh Weathers has done a good job and deserves our continued support. So thank you very much this morning uh, for joining us. Thank you, Ken, for doing what you do up there in the PD. Thank you, sir. Commissioner Hugh Weathers of the South Carolina Department of Agriculture will take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. See, every now and then, the chess master has to... You, you want to disclose the conversation we just had? <laughs> well, you're talking about the governor's race yeah. in Pennsylvania. And you are a chess player now. I'm going to congratulate you. I mean, well, you're no you. longer a checker player. You're a chess player. But every now and then... Um, somebody plays 4D chess, and you go like, oh, okay. Yeah, my, my. Um, uh, Recount the conversation. <laughs> so, so we're talking about the Republican nominee for governor of Pennsylvania, right? Mm -hmm. Correct. Uh, Mastriano, is that mm -hmm. his name? And He's he the nominee now. I he, mean, he, he declared the one yesterday. Okay. So he was endorsed by Trump. Mm -hmm. And looking down the road, you pointed out that the governor of Pennsylvania is going to be a big deal in 2024. When it comes to presiding over some of the election Ele matters, yeah, elect no wars. question about it. The, the Pennsylvania governor has a lot of influence, and um, interesting, yeah. See, see that there's yeah. the, there's the, but when the chess becomes four D chess, so everybody's paying attention to Oz McCormick and Barnett, and they should. I mean, you got to get a, a quality candidate because Toomey's retiring, and it's not like you're picking up a seat. I mean, you got to defend this seat. So Toomey is the Republican senator from Pennsylvania who's retiring. Um, Fetterman is kind of, um, I mean, he portrays himself as the average guy. You know, I'm, I'm Joe Sixpack. I was a big guy, big burly guy. Um, when you look at his polling, it's authentic. He's an authentic guy. He's a liberal. I mean, he supported Bernie Sanders, but he comes across as very authentic. Um, you know, the tats and the goat and the beard and the, and the hoodie. Uh, you know, kind of Pennsylvania blue collar, and that resonates. So Fetterman um, got about nearly 700,000 votes um, despite being in hospital with a pacemaker. But, but yeah, when, when Mastriano gets endorsed by Trump, 
And people say, well, who cares about the Pennsylvania governor's race? I'm far more interested in this Senate seat. Pat Toomey, you know, retiring, got to hold on to it if you're a Republican. But the Republican, or excuse me, the governor of Pennsylvania will have a, an enormous influence on what happens what, with the electors and the election <laughs> and Mastriano may cheat for Trump. That's why you know I'm kidding. Uh, Trump wants a fair and square election. We know that. Trump's such a, a moral and ethical man. Uh, he would not want anything. Uh, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Here's the perfect time. You ready? They stole it from Trump and he's trying to steal it back. I mean, in essence, that's kind of the. Oh, we just wanted to be fair and accurate. Well, right? they, they stole it from Trump, right. fair and square, and he's trying to steal it back. Um, fair and square. And in, in, the, in the craziest way imaginable, that's kind of why a lot of us like him. Because he's not going to take a whipping and just go home. He's just not going to do that. I mean, if you swing at him, you better be ready to get, you know, as we say in the country, swung back at. And um, But, yeah, Mastriano is going to be a pivotal figure if he can win. Now, now a lot of people say he can't. He's too extreme. He's too radical. Um, Trump shouldn't have endorsed him. I, I would probably, <laughs> I would not be surprised at all if Trump says, I'll endorse you, but here's what I need to happen in 2024 i mean really and truly you're a trump supporter mm-hmm. would it surprise you if trump made a deal like that no of course no, not of course because not. he believes you must fight fire with fire and he just kind of imagines this is what the democrats are doing they're scheming they're game planning they're conniving why shouldn't i scheme game plan and connive and i think mastriano says yeah, I mean, I, whatever you need, Donald, <laughs> endorse me. I'll win the nomination. Now we'll find out how it works out in the uh, in the general. Let's go to the phone. Here is David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, good morning. I tell you what, I've been watching this opponent's game film just about all night long, man. I can assure you, in Pennsylvania, that uh, MSNBC and James Carville and CNN they do not want us to win. Uh, and this thing, uh, it's a closed primary. I think if um, it you were allowed independent voters to be in there. I think the crossover appeal and celebrity of Oz, he'd already won. And if it, if there was a runoff, I think that uh, Kathy Barnett's voters would vote for Oz. So, you know, McCormick, he's got the establishment on his side. You're talking about this Mastrione. Well, I, wasn't he involved in January 6th? Yeah, he went. I think he bought like $4,000 worth of bus tickets. <laughs> well, I... Well, that's interesting. I'll give Oz credit. I've been following this night, like I said, all night long. He's done pretty well in Philadelphia. He's done well in, uh, I think, Bucks County. I'm not sure. One of those counties right outside. Let me tell you something about this John Fetterman guy. I guess he looks like a doggone six-foot-nine Amish Limp biscuit. I mean, this cat, he's one of them Bernie comrades. And let me tell you something. I mean, I don't care what he stands for. He's going to vote for these crazy people. So this is what this thing comes down to. Um, and, and, and what bothers me about watching this stuff this morning, CBS has got this storyline, hate in the homeland. All right, so they're going to run on this hate in the homeland. Now, here's, here's the reason that I'm kind of on Oz's side, because, you know, they're going to have MAGA is going to be the big bad wolf that's going to huff and puff and blow your house down and this and that. So if I'm a Democrat community activist, you know, I got that on my side. So. How are you going to do that to a Dr. Oz? Think about this. This guy is from Turkey, right? He's a Muslim. How is he a white supremacist? So you got a guy been on TV all this time. He's a mild-mannered doctor that uh, Oprah Winfrey is the one that brought him about. So 
how the hell can he be a white supremacist? So hopefully that'll uh, go against that narrative. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. Let's dig a little deeper in this. Let's play uh, some chess for a second here. So you've got Mastriano, got the Trump endorsement, um, and, and I believe they've made a deal. I mean, let's let the I think Trump's made a deal with Mastriano. Um, you've got a Democrat governor in Tom Wolf right now. Uh, that we talked a second ago. Is it a Democrat or Republican? Tom Wolf's the governor of Pennsylvania. He's a Democrat. Um, Josh Shapiro is the uh, two-time AG because um, Wolf is term limited, so he can't run for re-election. So the current AG, Josh Shapiro, is a Democrat. He's, uh, I mean, I think he ran unopposed in the Democrat primary. Not sure of that, but I think he did. So you got Mastriano, who won the Republican um, contest. You got Shapiro waiting as a Democrat to follow Tom Wolf, who was a Democrat, um, and, and they control the electors. I'll try to be more specific tomorrow about the details and nuances. But yeah, I mean, the demo, excuse me, the, the governor of Pennsylvania is going to be a, a figure. I mean, if we list the top 100 people, well, top 50 people in the 2024 election, the governor of Pennsylvania, whether it's Shapiro or Mastriana, would be one of the 50 people. Because once again, and, and now we're kind of getting the weeds. We're, we're playing, I mean, we're getting to Haley's world now. You know, I would have been, uh, years ago, Rev, I would have been the guy that said to Robert Cahaley, why do I give a rip? Wow, I almost said that. Why do I give a rip? Um, Got to be careful. Why do I give a rip who the governor is? I'm more interested in the senator. I mean, we need to get the power in the Senate back in the hands of the Republicans. And Robert would have immediately, not, not, not 10 seconds later, he would have immediately said, this guy will handle the electors, that this guy will, um, he will have some sway over the electors, he will have some ability to influence the process. So when you think that, you know, the Trump endorsement in a in a race that really and truly is not settling the balance of power in Washington, uh, but it still has a lot to do. And these are the tentacles of American politics. This is why you got to pay attention to any and all things, everything political when it comes to, uh, to that world. And uh, it'll be interesting because he's uh, he's already been painted as an extreme. I saw an article this morning, Mother Jones. I mean, they're extreme anyway. But but I want my mind's going a million miles an hour. I told you, normally when we do this show, there is a a story or two that carry the day. It's um it's not the case right now. You've got you know you've got Biden calling everybody with an R beside their name a racist. You know, and we believe in this replacement theory, and the replacement theory is basically to, I guess, go to grocery stores and kill white—I mean, kill black people. Um, that's absurd, and that's why I don't even give it much uh, consideration. But you, you've also got this Pennsylvania primary and the North Carolina primary. Um, Carl Rove said something about six months ago that it aged well when he said, "You know, Trump's biggest um, biggest mistakes will end up being Ted Budd in North Carolina." And uh, Purdue, David Purdue in Georgia. Uh, Purdue will probably be a mistake. I think Cawthorn in North Carolina was a mistake. A 26-year-old guy that just doesn't believe rules apply to him. Uh, it's kind of interesting. What is the Trump endorsement worth? A lot. I mean, a, a whole lot. What can't the Trump endorsement do? The impossible. I mean, it can't achieve the impossible. Cawthorn was too damaged, self-inflicted. So many, I mean, just made a lot of mistakes as a 26-year-old, um, kind of alienated himself within his own caucus, um, blamed everybody for everything, never accepted responsibility for the mistakes of immaturity that he made. He's a 26-year-old guy in Washington. 
um, that's asking for trouble anyway. So he goes up there and for all practical purposes, makes a fool of himself. Um, I don't understand Trump endorsing, but he did. And, um, and he loses by two or three percentage points. Um, I think something similar to that is going to happen in, uh, in Georgia. I think Purdue will get beat. Now, Purdue is not going to accuse um, his cohorts or comrades of um, of drug-induced orgies and all these other things that Cawthorn has um, pro- proclaimed to be true. But, but, but the Trump endorsement is worth a lot. And I think Dr. Oz is not a legitimate candidate without the Trump endorsement. I mean, I think Trump legitimized him in the political world. I think a lot of people said, Dr. Oz... I mean, that guy said a hundred different things, a hundred different ways on a hundred different Sundays, but in rural uh, Pennsylvania, the Trump endorsement overcame some of the personal oddities that, that is um, a kind of a complex man. I mean, he's a cardiothoracic surgeon. He's nobody's fool. I mean, he's well-educated. He's well-versed. He's, um, he's of, of, a, of a good pedigree, but, but the one thing that, that he said over and over and over again that um, I'll always put America first. Are you a conservative, Dr. Oz? Um, in the new terminology, I am. I mean, he never say, you know, yeah, I'm a 20-year subscriber to the National Review, and I went on a boat trip with George Will. Yeah, but we, I did hear an interview where he said, I'm pro-life and pro-Second Amendment. Yeah, pro-life, pro-Second Amendment, pro-America first. And I'll tell you, um, the pro-life, pro-Second Amendment is a big deal, but it's not a big deal, as big a deal as the pro-America first and um, Barnett, had Barnett not gained steam, I think Oz wins this by four or five points. But Barnett probably took two votes away from Oz for every one she took away from McCormick. And, and I was talking with someone yesterday and about this race, and I said, you know, I think McCormick overperforms, and he did. He polled at about 23. He's at about 32 now, so he picked up uh, a good bit. Oz polled at about, what, 29 or 30, and he ended up at about 32 uh, they're both within, what, two-tenths of one percentage point of one another. But uh, but right now, Oz has a 2,672-vote lead with, we're estimating, somewhere around fifty to 60,000 votes outstanding. And, you know, the, um, the percent of return already in is predicated upon what their projections are. So last night when you get to a—I mean, I saw MSN, excuse me, I saw Fox News had a um, 99% in— well, I mean, they revised that to 95% in because you had a bigger turnout than they expected. That meant more outstanding votes. So we think there's 50, 60, maybe 70,000 votes outstanding. And with a margin of 2,600 That's not them. much. And, and it, you really wonder where are the votes? You know, is, is, is the mail-in votes in uh, so some, of, uh, some of the locations where McCormick did good or the mail-in votes in places where, I still, I still allow it, I say it, Dr. Oz uh, did well in Pennsylvania. So we may have... Uh, a Republican nominee in Pennsylvania named Dr. Oz, <laughs> created by Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> Welcome to politics in 20. And you may have a Senator Dr. Oz. <laughs> you, you very well could. Take a break. Back in a minute. So when you go to an article at Mother Jones, the Mother Jones is one of these real liberal websites, but this, they have great writers. I mean, they're very interesting in, in the way they uh, articulate liberal America. But um, they're talking about Mastriana. And Trump, (laughs) here's what they say. Uh, What must be conveyed clearly and unflinchingly is this. If Mastriano wins the general election, there's almost certainly no chance 
that a Democratic presidential candidate's victory in Pennsylvania in 2024 will be certified by the state's <laughs> governor. That's the deal Trump's made, guys. I'm telling you. Trust me. That's the deal he's made with Mastriana. I don't give a damn what the vote is. Don't you certify it. They, they, uh, they stole it from me last time. We'll steal it from them this time. And uh, when you hear Mastriana talk, I think he took the deal. I think he was the one candidate on that side of the Republican primary that said, I mean, Trump's endorsement is in exchange for uh, your commitment to not certify the election because Tom Wolf did certify uh, the Pennsylvania election, despite what we believe happened in Philadelphia, less in Pittsburgh, a little bit in Pittsburgh, but largely in Philadelphia. And isn't this kind of what we complained about with the Democrats not playing the game, excuse me, with the Republicans not being ready not being willing, not being, uh, you know, up to the challenge. Uh, the Democrats had all this AC, the American Center for Tech and Civic Life, you know, the Zuckerberg money, uh, the election commissions, uh, the the charitable organizations. I mean, they had this network established and ready to roll on day one. Well, I mean, Trump says, okay, I can't build that network. I mean, I don't know of a billionaire that's going to give me $450 million to make sure we uh, put certain logistics in place for the election uh, process. COVID would have been different then, but I tell you what I will do. I'll make a deal with the governor of one of these swing states, and uh, and that's why I'm saying Mastriana matters because he will have enormous influence and sway over the certification of the election. In fact, he's the one that, that certifies the election or not. So if a Democrat wins Pennsylvania in 2024 and Mastriano was governor, does Mastriano say, nope, I'm not certifying the vote? Is he is he uh, can I say this? Is he ballsy enough to say I'm not doing it because my guy did it last time and he knows the vote was not legitimate? He knows that it didn't deserve to be certified. It seems to me that Trump is playing a little chess here. The things we complain about Trump, Trump doesn't pay enough attention. Trump's not committed enough to the the political process necessary to um, enhance his opportunities. Um, this is one move he's making. Here was what would be very interesting to me. Who suggested to Trump that this is important? I mean, do you really believe that Donald Trump thought about the governor of Pennsylvania before the governor of Pennsylvania, Tom Wolf, being a Democrat, certified an election that he considered to be illegitimate, invalid? I mean, Trump didn't have any idea what the governor of, um, I mean, you didn't until just now. No, that's right. I mean, you, you didn't have any idea. Um, but that's the deal on, uh, on Mastriano as Trump won an Emmy award. I mean, did, did, uh, did the apprentice did for the apprentice. So, so see my slogan would be if Oz wins, if Oz holds on and win, you guys can have the Nobel prizes. We've, we've got two Emmys because Dr. Oz has won an Emmy <laughs> and Donald Trump has won an Emmy. I mean, imagine the state of affairs in American politics when Emmy award winners are outpacing, um, <laughs> Nobel prize winners. Uh, one party's got Nobel Prize winners. Remember, um, Barack Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize yeah. before he before got he sworn in office. Right. Uh, that's before he launched an, an invasion of uh, well, one of those foreign lands. I think it might have been uh, Syria. Was it Syria? Uh, early in his term when he um, launched yeah, some, might, some I mean, kind of um, a missile attack on, on Syria. Uh, yeah, about the same time he's launching missiles in Syria, he gets the Nobel Peace Prize. Because that was kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, in your face to George W. Bush. Uh, but, but yeah, you can have the Nobel Prizes. We have the, um, the, the Emmy Emmys. Award advantage. <laughs> so, Dr. Oz, here we go. Uh, 
Emmy Award-winning candidate Dr. Oz got the endorsement of Emmy Award-winning former President Donald Trump um, in this hotly contested Senate race in the uh, in the state of Pennsylvania. But yeah, um, Mother Jones is already freaking out by saying that, um, and I love this word, unflinchingly. I mean, it is, what must be conveyed clearly and unflinchingly is if Mastriano wins the general election, there's almost no chance that a Democratic presidential candidate's victory in Pennsylvania in 2024 will be certified by the How fun would that be? <laughs> I mean, how much fun would it be for a Democrat to win uh, Pennsylvania in the presidential primary and Mastriano sitting there as the governor refusing to certify the election? In fact, change the electors. I mean, I think he's got some discretion on changing or swapping out the electors and find electors that say, nope, you got us last time. We're getting you this time. Now we're even. It's a little bit like Joey Logano and William Byron. You know, uh, are we even yet? I mean, Logano says they are. Byron says they aren't. So um, we'll find out this coming weekend at the race. So, so Trump Trump endorses Mastriano because I think he, uh, here's what Trump says. Hey, that guy may be crazy enough to not certify this election if we get him in there. So let's endorse him, kind of roll the dice and see how it works out. But you've got a state attorney general, a two-time elected state attorney general josh shapiro on the other side who i would imagine despite all the political headwinds of the democrats today would probably still be the odds on favorite take a break back in just a minute eight four three six six one oh nine three seven is our number someone's on the phone held on during the break let's go there verd good morning you're on the air good morning how y'all doing hey verd good i'm away to columbia for the uh, signing of senate bill 108 uh great day for the voters in south carolina and uh, election integrity and something we've been working on for a year and evidently we uh have done a good job i've had two people come to me complaining about me working on the bill and writing about it for about uh, a year <laughs> uh, but the two issues that they had are the two issues that was definitely targeted uh, they don't like the five person limit on people helping uh, people with absentees and early voting and they also don't like the two-week uh, period of uh, early voting limit. Uh, they lo- they love those month, two-month uh, uh, periods of time where they can haul voters uh, by the truckload to the uh, polls and stuff. Verd, when is this? So this voting, I mean, when, when it's signed into law, it becomes effective immediately. Is that is that what I understand? Ken, it was actually signed into law last Friday. This is a ceremony. We'll okay, gotcha, gotcha. At 2, at 2 o'clock. Uh, but will it take effect in the 2022 midterm? I mean, the 2022 generals? I'm not sure yet. Uh, there, there's some uh, – I, I think that it will be in effect for the general election, but I will let you know. Uh, okay. I'll find out more today. Uh, it, it won't be for the primary. Yeah, I knew that. that. I knew it wouldn't be in effect for that. the primaries, but, but – but, uh, but I know, and I, I really know I, t- I take that back, Ken. Uh, there's only going to be nine days. It's, it's actually in effect uh, now that I think about it because I, I was with Russell Fry last night, and we he gave a little speech on uh, a part of the bill, and uh, there's only going to be nine days of early voting in the June, uh, the June uh, election. Because, see, they were supposed to start Monday morning, this past Monday, with early voting, and it was actually put, once the governor signed it, it was put off for two weeks. So it is in effect. I, I sort of overlooked that. I had so much going on. Uh, but in, in this early period for the June election, there's only going to be nine days of early voting. Interesting. And there, there will be 14 days 
in November, and it'll be the Monday through Saturday, two weeks before the election, and the Monday through Saturday, one week before the election. And of course, the limit on uh, only five—you can only help five or witness five ballots. That's the big thing, you know. I've got printouts with people's names on there, uh, two and three hundred times where they witness ballots. So that's uh, that's suspicious, if nothing else. Bird, you talked about uh, you were with Fry. What is your take on the? I mean, we're what a month away from a primary in the seventh congressional district. I mean, your boots on the ground. You're there every day. You're kind of in the middle of the muck. Uh, where do you see this race right now as we speak? Uh, Twenty-seven days from the day the election's coming up, uh, and I'm in the camp that you are, Ken. I think it's uh, I think it's a two-man race. Uh, Dr. Barton is one heck of a nice guy, uh, very astute. Uh, Barbara Arthur is very passionate about uh, what she believes in and a hard worker. And, and of course, Ken Richardson, uh, he's got political savvy and political experience. Uh, and, and they're, they're going to make some, probably put some good numbers up on uh, June the 14th. But I just think when it gets down to it, uh, it's something you said months ago, uh, Ken, that it's going to get down to the person that impeached President Trump and the person that uh, President Trump endorsed. And I think that's the way the race is. I think that's the way it's been since uh, President Trump endorsed uh, Russell Fry. And Russell's worked hard. Uh, I think five uh, five different stops yesterday. I think we were his last stop at our meeting, and uh, he was in Chirau at their meeting. And I just think that uh, that that's where the race stands at. Not saying that the other people aren't great candidates and, and going to do a good job uh, on Election Day, but – I just think it's uh, a little too far to reach, as the old saying goes, uh, when you look at the uh, amount of funds that Tom Rice has and not that money. I think Jamie Harrison proved that money doesn't do a whole lot in South Carolina. He spent $150 million, and Lindsey Graham beat the doggone heck out of him. But uh, anyway, Ken, I think that's where it stands at. It's a two-man race, and uh, I think on election night, when everything is counted, uh, it's, that's where it's going to be at. Thank you, Bird. Appreciate that report. Um, and I did say that several months ago. I thought this election would boil down to the Trump uh, impeachment vote and the Trump endorsement. Uh, generic candidate A, impeach Trump. Doesn't matter if it's Rice or not. I mean, just pick a candidate. Voted to impeach Trump. That There's, there's a, a negative storm brewing when you do that. And on the other side, I don't care if it's Russell Fry, Ken Richard, doesn't matter. Dave Baker, uh, Mike Yon, it doesn't matter. I mean, when Trump endorses, there's a value there. And, and I'll tell you what we're seeing in Pennsylvania. We're seeing Oz benefit from the Trump endorsement, but Oz isn't running against a guy who voted to impeach Donald Trump. I mean, everybody in that race in Pennsylvania embraced the America First agenda. I mean, I don't, I mean, uh, McCormick worked at Goldman Sachs. He went to Princeton. He went to, to West Point. He worked for George W. Bush. I mean, he's done everything that, that America First kind of are offended by. The America First voting block is offended by. But he didn't run an establishment campaign. I mean, in fact, he said, hey, you know, I embrace the America First agenda. I think it's time the Republican Party, you know, realize that its job is to represent the interest of its constituency. Doesn't matter what we want to do, what do the people who send us here uh, want done? And so, so, you know, it's not that McCormick ran kind of, I mean, Liz Cheney's doing that. I mean, you know, Liz Cheney's doubling, tripling, quadrupling down. I mean, Liz Cheney basically agreed with Schumer yesterday when she said, yeah, I mean, my party's full of racists. I mean, it's a bunch of... Um, Why does uh, she even still call herself a Republican? I, I think she's sour grapes. I, I think the... Um, I mean, she's a Cheney. 
And and I think there's a, uh, I don't want to say a guilt, because I don't know that the Cheneys have the capacity to be guilty. I mean, I think it's just uh, the fact that they're associated with the Bush phenomenon, uh, the Bush doctrine, and out of the Bush doctrine came a, uh, a grievance by the voters, and the voters went to Trump and uh, not Jeb Bush. So I think a lot of those things are interconnected and tied together uh, loosely and closely. At, at times, it's fairly loosely associated. Other times, pretty closely associated. But the dynamic in the seventh race, and I don't know that we've seen this other than West Virginia. You've got one candidate endorsed by Trump and another that voted to either impeach or form the January 6th commission. Now, McKinley in West Virginia didn't vote for the uh, for the uh, impeachment, but he did vote for the impeachment. So that's the double whammy. Uh, Oz isn't the double whammy. Oz had the Trump endorsement, but he's not running against a, a never-Trumper, an anti-Trumper, or someone who voted to impeach Donald Trump. And that's why I think this race, I mean, I, I, I just keep going back to the math. I mean, it's just, it's hard for me to believe. Um, someone texted me this morning, uh, did Oz, did the Oz-Pennsylvania race, it's weird we call it that, but did the Pennsylvania Senate race that included uh, the endorsing of Donald, you know, the, the endorsement of a candidate by Donald Trump, did that shine any any more light on the 7th Congressional District? No, to me it's not. I mean, the, the West Virginia race, um, I wish the West Virginia, excuse me, uh, the Wyoming race will be a little bit uh, in line with what we're talking about here because Harriet Hageman has been endorsed by Trump. Liz Cheney, I mean, if, 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 if Tom Rice has doubled down on the impeachment vote, Liz Cheney has quadrupled down. Now, now the advantage Cheney has that, that Rice doesn't have is it's a plurality election. McCormick got 31% of the vote. Um, McKinley in West Virginia got about 31 to 3% of the vote. Liz Cheney's going to get in the neighborhood of 31, 32, 33%. That doesn't win in a state that requires a runoff. It could win in a state that does not. So Liz Cheney has a distinct advantage over uh, Tom Rice in that she doesn't have to come back two weeks later and figure out a way to turn 33, 4, 5 into 50. I think it's very likely, and I know I'm being redundant here, I think it's extremely likely that Tom Rice gets 34, 35% of the vote in the first round. I think it's even more, how do you say more or less likely? It's even, um, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know how to quantify least likeliness, but but it's it's far less likely that, that 35 turns into 50. I mean, I, for the life of me, I don't see how in the world uh, a candidate gets from there to there because, once again, you've got the double whammy effect. You know, you've got the impeachment vote and you've got the endorsement. You Use generic candidates. I mean, if you're running in a Republican primary and you've looked at the history of this midterm and you've got an, an election that includes one candidate, uh, Joe Smith, who's been endorsed by Trump, you've got another, uh, Joe Jones, who voted to impeach Trump, where's your money? I mean, who? I mean, really, I mean, it's, to me, it's a no-brainer. I don't see how anybody can get to a place other than that uh, unless we are the total and complete outlier. And, and we could be. We'll find out in... Uh, what did Vernon say? 27 days. But it's just, um, it would be against all mathematical precedent that has been set up until this point. Uh, let me find out when the Wyoming primary. We got a caller? Let's go to the caller. Here's Jim in Florence. Morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So I, the dynamic, and I hope I articulate this correctly, but the dynamic that's really different in South Carolina versus these other states is 
it's a winner-take-all event in all these other states where we have this runoff. So in a situation in South Carolina, you know, the more I learn about Russell Fry, I'm just really not keen on the guy. Um, If he makes it to the primary against Tom Rice, certainly I'll vote for him. But I can vote for somebody else in the in the initial primary part of this thing and still not really be voting against Trump, but be voting against Tom Rice. So that really throws a different dynamic in this thing where the, the, the Trump voter doesn't have to marry themselves to the Trump endorsement to vote against Tom Rice. I think that's very well explained. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got a, you've got a, a pick of the litter, so to speak. I mean, you've got Tom Rice who voted to impeach Trump. I mean, if you're if you're a Trump loyalist or an America First loyalist, you're not going to vote for Tom Rice. I mean, I don't know anybody that that deems himself an America Firster that is going to vote for Tom Rice. I mean, I'm not saying they aren't there. I just don't know anybody that way. But Jim explained it perfectly well. Yeah, the the Trump endorsement does not beholden you in round one to vote for Russell Fry. I mean, if you're a person of principle and you like Barbara Arthur better or you like Ken Richardson better, um, you, you vote then. The, 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 the magic question or the, the, the only question that matters is, oh, okay, let's say, it's, let's say something odd happens and we have Rice and Richardson. Let's say we have Rice and Arthur. Um, the Fry voters, the Richardson voters, the, the, the Dr. Barrett, uh, Dr. Martin, Martin voters, um, I mean, are they going to consolidate and, and coalesce? And yeah, I mean, I think that's the that that's what the I mean, if if you are any of these candidates, um, Barnett did that a little bit in Pennsylvania. Uh, McCormick and Oz went at it like crazy. I mean, they spent I mean, I've read 60, 70, 80 million dollars just beating the smithereens. I mean, just beating the hell out of one another. Um, he's a you know, he's a wacko nut job from Turkey. Uh, he's a, a hedge fund manager who worked for, you know, uh, George W. Bush and was in on the weapons of mass destruction fiasco. I mean, they were just going just, just crazy in negative ads in Pennsylvania. Um, and, and Barnett began to kind of the, um, the choice of default. In other words, I don't want to vote for any of those two people. Uh, and, and that could happen here. In other words, um, rice and fry or running negative ads against one another. We hear them on the radio. You see them on television. Social media has a lot of this. Uh, one guy has been sued by the FBI, and he didn't report uh, some of his um, – anyway, he, he dumped some of his stock before uh, he was privileged some of his information. Uh, Russell Fry missed a bunch of votes, and he voted to raise your taxes, but he didn't vote to lower your taxes. I mean, that's politics 101. And the reason they do it, folks, I know a lot of you don't like it, but the reason you do it, it works. I mean, it does. It absolutely works. Negative campaigning. I don't think negative personal campaigning works, but I think when you introduce as part of the debate someone's political record, I don't think the public's bothered that much by that. You know, I think, did Russell Fry miss that many votes? Did Tom Rice's net worth increase by $10 million, and was he sued by the FBI as a member of Congress? I think those things are absolutely fair game and aren't bothersome to the consuming public. I think when you start talking about I mean, the Hunter Biden situation is interesting to me. If Joe Biden is running for office, I'd be real careful with the Hunter Biden information as a negative ad. I'm not talking about the New York Post. I'm not talking about Fox News. I'm not talking about CNN. That's their job. Their job is to report things that are newsworthy. And if the president's son has some issues, that's newsworthy. 
the political campaign has to be careful about introducing as a part of the campaign a member of the family because i'm telling you if i'm hunter biden's dad my only response is he's my son i love my son unconditionally it's none of your damn business how we deal with the issues and problems that every american family faces now now biden's done it different he put him on air force one or air force two uh, and said get carried to china with him and we believe he's endorsed uh from afar from a distance some of the business dealings Mm -hmm. uh he says he doesn't know anything about hunter biden's business dealings nobody believes that for a second he might be the big guy that hunter biden referred to but i think most people believe he is well yeah but but you got to be careful in negative campaigning because everybody has a family member that's had a struggle and you you begin to humanize people and um the last thing you want to do in that situation is to humanize that relationship um let the media tell you how you know uh cooked up a deal joe biden and his son had let let the um well i mean if they would let the new york times report you know on some of these things that that deserve to be reported on uh the public consciousness will be shaped by some of that uh, well i mean in days gone by the, that the new york times might do reporting. it maybe a year and a half later but, I mean, know, but, but the, the point i'm making rev is you got to be careful going after somebody's family you got to be real delicate sure. about that because you give the campaign a chance to humanize the issue and you generate sympathy. I mean, you really do. Because Biden, if he, I mean, Biden, if days gone by, he couldn't do this today unless somebody put it on a teleprompter. Uh, he couldn't say that I love my son unconditionally. My son has had his struggles. Uh, a lot of families have struggles. You know, I'm going to stick by my son until, you know, I, either I or he leave this planet Earth. And I, I just think people begin to say, yeah, that's a little bit off limits. Now, now once again, I think it's fair game because Biden has chosen to make as part of his political career the prosperity of his brother and his uh, and his son. So, but but let the media, and that's where we really need the media to do their job to to not just um, try to shut these, not just not report on these stories, but try to shut them down and and not them allowed or not allow them to be a part of the uh, a part of the mainstream. It's going to be a lot of fun next twenty seven days. Uh, the Wyoming primary is in August, so that will be post South Carolina primary. And I would imagine as much as we'd want to learn in this district about Wyoming, they're going to pay close attention to South Carolina because you've got a candidate who voted for impeachment running against a Trump endorsed candidate in a primary. Uh, we've not had that yet that I'm aware of. I mean, you only had nine or 10 Republican primary, uh, or Republican, uh, house members vote for the impeachment was it nine or 10. I keep saying nine or 10. It can't be one. It's got to be one or the other. Was it nine or 10? Now we'll find that out during the break. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. So it wasn't nine or 10. It's 10, 10 Republicans in the house voted to impeach president Donald Trump. Four of the 10 have announced they're not running for reelection. So we've got Liz Cheney. We've got Tom Rice. We've got four others out there I'll do a better job tomorrow. I'll try to find out the six that are running, uh, who their competition is, when the dates are. uh, Is there something we can gather between now and then? Uh, The West Virginia race thus far has been the most telling to me. Um, It affirmed or reestablished some of the beliefs I had about the double whammy. And by the double whammy, I mean uh, McKinley did not vote to impeach, 
but he did vote to uh, create the January 6th commission that led to Kinzinger and, uh, and Cheney. Kinzinger's not running for re-election. Uh, Upton in New York is not running. There's four that aren't running for re-election because they saw the headwinds. I mean, it was inevitable. They weren't going to win. They, they saw their polling numbers. It's kind of interesting to me how little polling, public polling there is in the 7th Congressional District. I would imagine that will intensify as we get, you know, two weeks away. We're still about four weeks out, uh, a day less than four weeks, 27 days, as Verd said. But, I, you know, there's a lot of polling out there that Rice has paid for, Fry's paid for. I would imagine um, Ken Richardson, he put some of his own money in the campaign. He's probably at some point in time paid for a poll. But I think Jim raised an interesting point. Um, and I, I'd love to, for Jim to explain why he feels the way he is, because it sounded to me like um, I know Fry got the Trump endorsement, but I don't know that he's my guy. What he said? You know, I, I know Rice is not, because I got to be loyal to this America First movement. And that's why I think it's going to be hard to climb that hill, Reb. I just think there's some beholdenness. And maybe that's a weird word that most of us have with America first. And if we reelect the guy that voted to impeach, um, I don't know, the um, the leader of the band, so to speak, that is America first, are we turning our back on what we believe in? There's kind of a self-conflict we have. And we find our, ourselves that I'm not, I don't have any problem with Tom Rice. I mean, I've said it over and over and over again. And I'll say it. I wish the son of a gun had voted to not impeach. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said that before, yeah. I, you know, and I, I respect the man for voting his principles and, and, and voting what he believes was the right thing, but he damn sure complicated uh, his job in Congress when he chose to do that. And once again, uh, the, the principled moral thing to do, who knows, you know, uh, nobody else in our delegation did that. You know, every other house member from South Carolina uh, voted to not impeach, uh, you know, so uh, I just, I, you got to be careful with that argument. Um, but once again, it is very personal. I mean, that that's Tom's personal opinion, Tom's personal uh, perception. But, but I, I just, when I look at the numbers and I look at the math, I just don't know how you dig out from under it. And when I hear Jim say that, that's very interesting to me. I'm trying to be a, a bit psycho, I don't know, psycho babble or psycho analysis here, but Jim sounded like, there's no way I'm voting for Rice, but, I, but I'm but i not real enthusiastic about Fry. Um, if pressed, I mean, if you're right, Ken, and we end up with a Fry-Rice runoff, then, then yeah, I'm going back to vote for, for Fry. Now, here's the, here's the worry of that. Um, let's say that we have a Rice-Fry runoff, but Arthur and Barton and uh, Ken, Richardson. Ken Richardson and, you know, some of the other what I'll call – uh, I, yeah, let's say it. Second tier candidates, uh, you know, they they garner more and more audience. Um, how inclined is someone who supported Arthur uh, to go back two weeks later and support the Trump endorsed candidate? You know, the majority of what I've heard, and I've conversed with some of these candidates. You know, um, I should have been the one that Donald Trump endorsed. I mean, I've heard this from nearly all the other candidates. I should have been the one. I think Ken Richardson said on the debate stage. I'm not mad that Russell, excuse me, yeah, I'm not mad that, that, no, I'm not mad I didn't get the Trump endorsement. I'm mad Russell did. So there's probably some um, subconscious envy there that you're not as aware of, but you're not, you know, you don't like the fact that you felt like, well, what is that? Is that a soundbite there? And there you go. I mean, I, I, you know, I think a lot of the candidates feel that way. They feel they're more America first than Russell is. Uh, Barbara Arthur feels 
that she epitomizes America first. Uh, Dr. Barton's the outsider, you know, no political experience. Who's more like Trump than I am? Ken Richardson, kind of a self-made businessman. You know, I deserve the nod. And Russell, for whatever reason, I don't know why they made that decision. Uh, I don't have any idea what went into that. Uh, I would imagine Trump made that call with the advice of several other people. I know two or three people that he listens to, um, but I don't have any any privileged information as to why or why not he made that decision, but that's the decision that was made, and I think it's inevitable we end up with a, a Trump-endorsed candidate against someone who voted to impeach Donald Trump, and we've not had that yet. We've had things similar to that. We think, I mean, Dr. Oz and McCormick, uh, could, could you say there's something to, to read into or read from that race into this race? Yeah, but you got to really read hard. I mean, you know, Oz was endorsed by Trump. Fry is endorsed by Trump. Give me another similarity. I mean, I can't think of one. I mean, the, the voting constituency is a little bit the same. Um, Pennsylvania is not as conservative as South Carolina. Republican primary voters in Pennsylvania aren't as conservative as Republican primary voters in South Carolina. Um, but, but other than Oz being endorsed by Trump and Fry being endorsed by Trump, I can't think of a single uh, similarity, one with the other. Hey, enough of Trump and enough of the seventh congressional district. Um, Elon Musk has been in the news, uh, news, the news a lot lately uh, with some of his uh, purchasing of Twitter. Um, yesterday, he felt compelled for whatever reason to talk politics. And uh, th- these tech guys, they, they just don't do a lot of that. I mean, they, you know, they're worried about algorithms and and content moderators and making money or and, they do it behind the scenes well, I mean, maybe they do i don't Zuckerberg. know but i mean uh you know bezos has had some things to say here recently that's been interesting uh, yeah some of these corporate titans some of these um uh what i call modern day american oligarchs uh you know that that have so much influence over the government because they have so much money and sway over over policy but must kind of um hey took a jab i mean he took a real uh the left says it's inappropriate I think it's very funny. And I think when Elon Musk decides to let his guard down, I think when Peter Thiel decides to let his guard down, I think when Jeff Bezos decides to let their guard down, they, they make a lot of sense. They just hardly ever let their guard down. But Musk was on a, I guess, a Zoom call. There were some people in the um, in the auditorium. There were like some who podcast. weren't. It's a podcast. Yeah. Uh, imagine a bunch of tech guys having a podcast. <laughs> and um, they, they were talking about, I don't know, the state of affairs in America and Elon Musk said about as much about politics as I've ever heard him say. Let's go there. <laughs> and, and guys, this is let's, wow. th- th- that's an American president. I mean, th- these are a bunch of tech titans um, who typically probably vote Democrat. Right, I mean, and, in fact, and, earlier. Musk said in that podcast, he said he doesn't know that he's ever voted for a Republican before, but he's definitely voting yeah. Republican now. And our buddy CP was there, you know, yeah. the, the Bitcoin expert. Uh, he's there as part of the tech conference. And I mean, it got a little bit uh, disrespectful there real quick when he said, um, you know, who knows what Biden's doing now? It's weekend at Bernie's. I mean, it got really, I mean, it got insulting very, very, very quick. And I think they said things publicly that, that everybody thinks, I mean, other than the 25% morons who believe that Joe Biden's still doing a good job. I mean, if you're one of the 25% of morons who believe Joe Biden's still doing a good job, I understand supporting the team. I mean, I'm a Gamecock fan. 
Uh, there, there was a 21-game losing streak. I went to the games because I didn't know what else to do. I mean, I'm a Gamecock fan. That's what Gamecock fans do. We suck, but you suck with them. So I understand the brand loyalty. I understand if you're a Democrat, you've always been a Democrat. You'll go to your grave supporting Democrats. I understand that. But there's no way you can argue the guy's doing a good job. I mean, there's just simply no way. The guy has been an enormous and miserable failure as our nation's chief executive, period. End of conversation. There is no debate to be had about that. Well, was Trump's tweets inappropriate? Was Trump more bombastic? Yeah, but Trump was up for the job. Trump did things. By, uh, Musk says that. You know, I'm not crazy about Trump, but when you look uh, kind of retrospectively, Donald Trump did things. I mean, his team did things. Uh, they cut taxes. They, they managed some parts of the economy. They did some things he probably agreed with. They did some things he probably disagreed with. Joe Biden does not have the depth, nor understanding, nor capacity, as we speak, to do anything. I mean, he's simply being led around, and that's the weekend at Bernie's comment. And look, guys, these aren't these aren't drunks at a bar. I mean, these are very serious people who have a lot at stake with how American politics is conducted or not. And it looked to me like for a second that they, they were all at a bar drinking a beer uh, because it kind of got, you know, one up the other. You know, when, when Musk says, play it again, Ref, because I think it's very, it's very revealing because somebody says something about Biden and, and Musk, I think Musk broke the ice. And I think people in the audience wanted to say these things. They wanted people to laugh with them, but they were a little bit, I don't want to say things about insult, in, insulting things about our president, but Musk basically grants permission when he says this. So, so he said, so Musk says, you know, who knows what Biden's doing? And that was the permission slip for everybody else to let off their chest what they've been uh, reluctant to. Uh, and, and the next thing you know, somebody yells out, weekend at Bernie's. And then one says, uh, he's not getting his nap. I mean, this is the American president we're talking about, guys. I mean, this is the leader of the free world. Uh, this is what we've got. This is who we have for probably the next three years-ish, uh, somewhere there about a little better than three years, uh, two and a half years now, right? Am I right? Uh, two and a half, yeah. two and a half years. Uh, we're, ah, we're a year and a half into this presidency, and <laughs> here we are. Uh, but but no, nobody believes the guy's doing a good job. And, and you're right, Rev. The majority of those people that you just listened to would vote 75 80% Democrat. I mean, they, they, would, they would be for the free market. They would be for capitalism. They would be for some of the, the deregulation of the Republican Party. But, but they, they, they find the Republican Party to be, well, stale, pale, and male. And they're not very much in tune with wanting to be a part of a, a stale, pale, and male party. That's why it excites me when Musk says things, uh, not complimentary about the Republican Party, but, but I've got no other choice. I mean, I want to vote. And I can't vote for these nuts, these morons, these culture warriors, this, um, the high degree of wokeism in America today. I think a lot of those libertarians in Silicon Valley are, are deeply concerned about this wokeism. I mean, it's, uh, we're not going to dance around the edges any longer. We're going to call it like we see it. But I think the, the, the part of that that is so interesting is when Musk says his disparaging comments, everybody else almost instantaneously says the thing they've been holding back and afraid to say for who knows how long. Mm-hmm. And when the and big then they guy, laugh and the yeah, audience yeah, laughs. And, it's, it's almost like, a, you know, hey, you know, Elon Musk cut the uh, relief valve on so we can say these things that we've all been wanting to say. But, but look, and, and the 25% of Democrats, um, I'm a Gamecock fan. I get it. I understand it. I, the, you're loyal to the bitter end. But there's no way in this world that you believe that guy is up for the job 
has the capacity to do the job and will ever end up being a good president. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. 843 few moments left in this show. Rev asked an interesting, I mean, we've not talked at all about the trial. Yeah, I want to know what's going on with the Durham investigation and the Sussman trial that is officially underway, right? Yeah. Because we uh, want somebody to be held accountable for this mess. I'm hoping Andy McCarthy writes about it today. <laughs> I mean, I trust Andy McCarthy to give me a uh, an accurate accounting of whatever happened in the trial because I, don't, I can't make heads or tails, especially in some of the preliminaries. But, but this is linking the Clinton campaign directly Correct. to the Russia, 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 well, Russia I mean, hoax, right? That's been established. I mean, we know that. The thing we're trying to find out now is um, – did Sussman intentionally lie to the FBI when he said he wasn't working for a client? You know, he, in other words, he said, I've got this information. It's a matter of national security. Somebody in the FBI said, who are you working for? Nobody. Nobody. Well, he was working for the Clinton uh, campaign. The one line that I found very interesting, there's an article in the Washington Post that says, Durham prosecutor Britton Shaw repeatedly said the evidence will show that this is a trial about privilege. Why does that why does that word ring uh, loud to me? Um, to me, that's a strategic choice of words because the case will probably be argued from the Clinton campaign's um, assertions that a lot of this information is client attorney privilege. And I think to flip it around and say, um, and I think that's very intentional. I mean words matter in, in these hearings and proceedings, and I think the word privilege, because the jury's going to hear a lot of the Clinton and the defense will say, well, I mean, we, we can't we can't disclose that because we got attorney client privileges and some key information won't be divulged or won't be made um, known to the to the jury of the public for that matter. And I think that the um, the Durham investigative team is trying to redefine what the word privilege means. In other words, these folks are going to tell you that a lot of the things they want you to don't want you to know is because they have this client attorney privilege. When in reality, they're just privileged. They don't think they have to play by the same set of rules that you do. And that sentence just jumped out to me. Now, once again, I could be making more about this than there really is. And I'll hopefully read something Andy McCarthy writes because he does a spectacular job. In, um, and he's a lawyer. He's a former U.S. attorney general or U.S. attorney. And he kind of knows the way these proceedings, uh, when somebody's had a good day or a bad day. And, you know, I kind of take the bait. I mean, if someone sounds honest or sounds sincere, I tend to give them the benefit of the doubt when somebody sounds like they're making it up as they go. Uh, so, so anyway, McCarthy kind of puts a um, a more tight argument on well, you know, forget forget the emotions, forget the theatrics. Um, here's what the law says, and here's where their biggest legal trouble is. But I do believe that um, that the Durham prosecutor inserting the word very early that um, that this is a trial about privileged people who don't believe they have to play by the same sets of rules you do. And it kind of snuffs out this client privilege, you know, mm. this attorney-client privilege. Well, I, I think that is very, very, very strategic and and probably to some degree smart, and we'll find out whether it's effective in the long run. But, uh, but at the end of the day, um, Sussman is being charged with concealing um, his clients. And when he goes to the FBI and he's got this dossier and he shops the dossier um, and the FBI says, who are you working for? And he says, no, man, this is a matter of national security. You know, I would imagine if, I mean, if I'm Sussman, the way I talk, I'd have said, I don't know, man, I've been beating around politics a long time. People bring me things from time to time. 
I mean, this ended up in my hands. I know I'm not the one to review it, nor validate it, but somebody needs to. And uh, I mean, I hear you guys have things like FISA courts and FISA warrants. So, um, you know, I'm sure you can get to the bottom of it. And that's just completely and totally fabricated and dishonest. The cleanser sleaze bags, man. I mean, they always have been and they always will be. Now, you know, there, there's some degree of uh, exemption. I'll give Joe Biden because I don't think he knows. I mean, I think Biden today is a is a man looking for a bed, you know, looking for a um an insurer, you know, to get his protein and and bone marrow treatment, and, and then he wants to go off and um and I think the last thing Joe Biden wants to be right now is president. I think he's wanted to be president all of his life, and if God plays cruel jokes, maybe this is the cruel joke. Biden, all of his adult life, has chased the presidency. He finally catches the proverbial presidency, and he's simply not um cognitive enough and capable enough to do the job that he thought he could do 30 or 40 years ago i never thought joe biden had the depth that it took to be a president i always thought he was a little bit of a dunce and, and kind of a uh, plays both sides a back slapping glad handing you know i'll say what you need me to say politician uh you know work pale scranton joe and all that i mean that's a bunch of bs we knew that uh, might be smarter than I thought he was because he ended up buying a house that the DuPonts owned <laughs> and he's a public servant. Yeah. So, you know, you can't be a complete moron making a government salary. Yeah. Uh, not only did he get wealthy, his brother and son hmm. got, um, well, his brother goes through a lot. Of, excuse me. His son goes through a lot of money. So it takes a lot to keep him up. Uh, his son could use Larry. Larry's in the financial coaching business. <laughs> Hunter Biden would be a great, um, client because <laughs> how do you spend that much money? Huh? You live like he does. Like an idiot. Take a break. Back in a minute.